welcome. Welcome to the Spiritual Underground Podcast. Uh, this is the first time you're stumbling upon this podcast. We are primarily a 12-step recovery-based uh, podcast. I do, however, explore other ways in which people are returned to sanity. So uh, if you're out there and have a path that's not traditional, I'd love to hear about it. Uh, I'll tell you a couple things. First one is the music wrapped around this podcast is by Darren Frank. He is my grand sponsor and a wonderful, uh, wonderful human being. And I uh, want to give him credit for the music around this thing, amongst a lot of other blessings that he has handed to me, just from a simple point that he's been in my life. Uh, I have a little handyman woodworking business in New Albany, Indiana, called DTM Woodwork. Uh, you can find me on Facebook and various places like that, and uh, I'm an easy person to find. So if anything like that will fit you, and uh, I might be able to serve you, please contact me. And 12 Step Spiritual Recovery is a book by James Christopher Cohn. It is, uh, I haven't said this in a long time, but it, uh, I'll do it, I like saying it this way. It is the Great Compendium, the Magnum Opus of the 12 steps it is built for three specific niches as far as i can see Uh, one of them is for uh, people who don't fit the traditional 12-step mold they don't have an ism such as alcoholism or addiction or gambling or anything in particular Uh, but they would still like to maybe try out the tools the 12 steps offers Uh, fits those people the way as i'm saying that do not traditionally fit in 12-step fellowships it also uh, is great for people who maybe have uh, been in a 12-step program for some time and need to spice it up, need just a little twist, want to go uh, a, a little different angle of approach at the 12 steps. And it is for those who just, you know, you hear this. I tried AA and it, and it just didn't work for me. So uh, maybe that different angle of approach would work for you too, since it's not uh, it's the twelve steps, but it is not AA or NA or anything like that. So if you're interested in that, it's twelve steps spiritual recovery dot com. It's all spelled out. Uh, you can also find links at my various uh, places, and the book can be found on Amazon, and it is also in a in a Kindle version. Um, first few chapters are uh i've read them and and turned them into podcasts so if you just want to get a taste of what that is uh you can find those first chapters out on my podcast and and get a little listen to it and see if uh if it maybe strums your strings in a way that uh make you want more it's kind of a free sample so you know, in my time, I always say over and over again around here that uh, my chronological timeline doesn't work out. And, and I've kind of let go of the fact that it doesn't work out. And, and I don't get to, even when my guests want to get real hammered in on, on chronology, uh, I try to push them along that that doesn't really matter that much that it was March of 2018. No, hold on. It was May. Nope. Nope. It was, you know, that's... Uh, those exact dates don't matter much. So what I'm getting at there is that the gentleman that's here with me today, I don't really remember exactly when I met him. I know where I met him, uh, but it's, I've got a feeling in my head that uh, it's it was around this current sobriety date go around because I bounced around for a few years and uh, couldn't really 
uh, as I said a minute ago, it was something I couldn't really get. And uh, and I believe I met Eric on uh, someplace around 2015 at, uh, at, at what I would say is my Indiana home group. And uh, I kept a home group in Indiana and one in Kentucky. I figured that was safe in case the bridges broke down. No matter what, I'd have a uh, home group on each side of the river. If you're from around here, the Ohio River splits southern Indiana and the Louisville uh, metropolitan area. And um, when you live in Indiana, you cross that river uh, often. I've made most of my livelihood on the other side of the river in Kentucky. But I met Eric um, in, a, in what was my New Albany home group, and, and we were about the same. Uh, our sobriety dates were pretty close together. So you kind of battle buddy up a little bit to some extent when guys are at the same place that you are in your recovery. And, uh, and I've always made connections with people just for that simple fact that we were both uh, working on this thing, trying to get sober at the same kind of timeline. You know, I run into a guy in a meeting. He's got 30 years. I can't see. I can't even begin to see, feel any kind of uh, connection with the guy. But when he's right there at the same amount of time that I got, uh, we'll have a lot in common. So welcome to the show, Eric. Good to be here. I appreciate it, Dan. Yeah, man. It's uh, you know, as I sit with people and I do this podcast thing, you know, I always got the wheel going in my head. How come I haven't? asked you before now and that's another one of the things i have to let go of uh, yeah. uh i figured like uh the prayer i say before this thing starts uh god's running the show his horsepower is the one driving this so uh, i'm gonna assume that uh that it that it happens the way it's supposed to happen you know i've listened to your podcast buddy for i don't know how i came across spiritual underground had to be a facebook had to be your name saw your name and face and next thing you know spiritual underground and you're always, for me, I love going to meetings. I've got my same cluster of meetings I, I love going to, but you're always looking for something different, just to stay in the, and get your juice from this program, you know, and stay on your path. And uh, I saw Spiritual Underground, had no idea you were involved with it, started listening to it, and I thought, what a great way during the day when I'm in the office, I can throw that on and listen to it. And yeah, next thing you know, it became you part that. of my routine. Loved it. And next thing you know, I'm talking to my sponsors, some sponsees and some other people who'd reach out to me, and I said, i tell you what, <clears throat> Why don't you give this a shot? You know, it's amazing when you get people coming in the, in the program. Let's go to a meeting. It's overwhelming because I ran from it. That's yeah. why I failed so many times. But to do a podcast like this and be able to listen to it, you know, it's it's not intimidating, you know. And and, and I've I've leaned on it a lot with people that I've helped, Thank and you. it's been great. And uh, and I, I've loved every podcast. I don't think i've missed too many yeah you know when we reached out the other day i said hold on i'm seeing a week or two i don't see a podcast something's going on here that's what i was getting ready to go with is that i kind of took a same way god's running the show and i and i never have had to work real hard to get guests you know the god provides them and uh and then i know you know that eric sent me a note makes seeing if everything was okay because there hadn't been a new podcast out for a little bit and it doesn't take me but a couple seconds to realize that's my nudge from above that says, well, uh, why haven't you asked Eric until now? So I'm really glad you accepted that uh, invitation. Yep. What's your sobriety date? October 4, 2014. Yeah. Yep. And, so you uh, got... It's a, it's a great day coming up on seven years, yeah. you know. And um, 
You know, and to be honest with you, Dan, I really could care less about that. You know, I uh, people get excited about birthdays. You know, I think it's great. I'm glad I have seven yeah. coming up versus four or three yeah. or two. Yeah. And we should celebrate ourselves. I do. I love it. You know, I, yesterday was pretty exciting being sober, you know? Yeah. And I right. look forward to finishing today. And, and you can bet your ass that I'm going to do all I can to be sober tomorrow, you yeah. know? And um, so it's great. I get a coin, you know, and I get to talk to people for a few minutes when I get recognized. Hopefully I have that chance in seven yeah, years, right. you know? Yeah. But uh, those are great. But every day, you know, day one was pretty cool for me to be sober. Day 111 was pretty cool, you know. Day 999 was pretty cool, Yeah. you know. And um, I just I just want to be sober one more day than yep. today, you know. And I, you know, you know this, but... Uh, me getting up here and getting that coin ain't for me. It's mm-hmm. for the guy who's uh, mm-hmm. the guy who's coming up on the trail behind us, and for mm-hmm. the guys that get that are got more time than us. Yeah. You know, it, it's a us thing. It's part of that we. Uh, it's a it's not an option. I get guys that don't want to. We give away monthly coins at Spiritual Underground every month. Okay, you know, for one month, two months, yeah. three months, yeah. and, and I like that. And I treasure my little stack that I got during my journey through yeah. there. And you get a guy that doesn't want to do it. And I say, well, how come? And they'll give me some uh, lip service on why they don't want to do it, you know. And yeah. uh, that my simple answer is, it you're that ain't for you, man. That's true. That's you get that thirty day token, man. You're the that you're getting it because there's a guy sitting out there that's got ten days and can't imagine having thirty. You know, and, I went to. Um, I started going right before the pandemic hit. I started going to Token Three Club, and and I'll tell and I'll reference this in my story, but. I uh, hadn't been there in years, right? Because you're typically over to the Serenity House over in, in uh, over here on this side of the river yep. and a few other places. But long story short, I hadn't been there in years. They've moved locations. Right. But went there. Well, the way they do it there is if you have one day, when you go around the room and introduce yourself, uh, I'm Linda. I have three days of sobriety. I'm John. I got 96 days right. of sobriety. You know, we don't do that in some of the meetings around mm-hmm. here. I loved it. Now, yeah. at first it set me back a little bit, and I thought, yeah. You know, because I tell you, for me personally, we all have our meetings we love going to. I love speaker meetings, so I can relate. And, you know, some speaker meetings make me realize, man, he's he's had it tougher than me. Yeah. Others, I look and I'm like, we're identical. That's yeah. my story. I needed to hear that again. I'm not the only one who did those things. Right. Yeah. But the ones that have the biggest impact, I tell you, when you go and everybody comes up and they get the various coins and, and we do our, our period of sobriety and we acknowledge that, is the person get the 24 hour coin. Yeah. Coin and or token. And I look back and I can look at these people. They look lost. They don't know what the shit this program's about. They don't know what's in front of them. They have no clue if they're even going to be able to go to bed tonight without getting another drink, even though they just got this token. I felt that way. I looked that way. In fact, when I see them, it it makes me realize that's what I must have looked like. Yep. You look like I think I must have felt. And I actually get more juice out of seeing those people I love seeing everybody. I love 10 years of sobriety, 40 years of sobriety. I love hearing it. Yeah. Right? It sets a great bar for all of us to chase after. Yeah. That guy taking that first step. Boy, I tell you what. And every single time I leave there and I'm like, you know, if I had to write on a pen and piece of paper what had the biggest impact on me today for the last 60 minutes, it was so-and-so who just got his 24-hour token. Yeah, man. Yeah. And I'm excited. It excites me. Mm-hmm. to the thinking that you know this guy's gets he doesn't understand he or she doesn't understand the depth of what they've just done if they will do this thing yeah. if they will work it mm-hmm. 
because uh, it it really does when when it says in that book that you have huge re- huge rearrangements and displacements and rearrangements. Mm-hmm. Yeah, uh, it's a it's it transforms people. It really you know, does. It, it, it's so scary what you're getting ready to go to the unknown uncertainty. How does this work? What does this picture look like? You know, you have sponsors telling you this: ninety days, ninety meetings. Get a home group. I want you to call me. Get a sponsor. Blah blah blah. All those things obviously are part. They're part of the tool chest. They are. But when you're so early on, you don't know what that final picture looks like. Yeah. You know, and I'm a sea touch feel guy. I want to see what that picture looks like. If you show me the picture, I'll find the way to get there. Mm. At least with a lot of help. You know. And I think you come in here and you're so overwhelmed. Your yep. life is in shambles. And how does this whole thing of AA fit together? Yep. And it can be overwhelming. Yep. And you come in, it sounds like people are speaking a foreign language. Oh, my you Lord. Know, you, you know, you get to talking 12 steps yeah. speak. Yeah. You know, I it mean, is. It's, like a, it's like a different language. Yeah. I mean, I could talk some, hopefully, some positive things today, but the biggest part of my story is how you fail. Yeah. You know, and, and, and I, now I don't mind failing. I've failed in every aspect of my life, but I tell you what, failing is the greatest damn thing that can ever, you can ever do. Yep. It's a function of how you choose to recover from it. Right. You know? Yep. Um, I've never met a perfect person yet. Yep. You know, so that tells me we've all failed. Yep. You know, some are just a lot better about adjusting and moving on from a from a failure. Yep. And um, adapting. Yeah. And uh, yep, because I don't learn anything when I get it when I do something right the first time. Mm-hmm. Yeah. <laughs> There's no impact to that. No, not at all. Impact is, and that's some of the kind of funny thing about you know when guys gals come in and they stumble, which they invariably do. Yep. Uh, that that's just part of this process to to get your wheels underneath of you get feel get your feet under you you know and you just watch people beat themselves up over uh, stumbles you know and mm-hmm. you know and it can make you leave forever you know uh, might cost you your life but failing upward is how we do this you know <laughs> we stumble upward we've all well I can't say we all I can speak for me you know I came in and out of this program several times and I failed well well before even coming in to where I had the chance to go back out inside this program because I wasn't even ready to walk through the doors the first time right I'd failed on my own and um, I was too good for this program didn't want to understand what it is because I was obviously in my eyes a much better person than any of those people on the other side of the walls and um, I ran in chaos for a number of years before I ever came in and then when I came in, I faked the program. I was a fraud inside of the program as well for a, quite a long time. And um, people say you're not going to get sober till you're ready to get sober. I do believe that. You're not going to get sober till you hit your own wall. Um, I, all those things are true. But I just I wasn't ready uh, for a multitude of reasons. And I look back, and uh, my sponsor, about 30 days into it, I don't want to get into it till we talk to the story, but I remember about 30 days, I didn't want to do the program anymore. I just didn't want to. Uh, for 29 and a half days, I did. I knew that's where I needed to be. But something about day 30, I got up and did my normal routine, third cushion from the left on the couch. I got on my knees and prayed. And I, I honestly, goodness, I've never had God cuss me, ever. But that day, I, my prayer, I got half of it out. And I said, God, I just don't want to go. I just knew I was going to go back out. I knew it. Because I'd been there before, you know. And... Um, but up until the, I went to bed the night before, I was all in. But something hit me. I didn't want to do it. And I remember God saying, get your ass up from now on. You're the backseat driver. I've taken the wheel. Mm-hmm. And that's not to be exotic, but that is exactly the words that I heard. And it was the first time where I could get a picture in my head that, hey, dumbass, do you realize this isn't about you? 
It never has been. You're not going to get sober on your own. Those rooms, those walls, and the people in between them, they're the ones that are going to help get you there. You know? And it clicked where maybe you do need to listen to those suggestions. Maybe your sponsor is valuable. Maybe go into meetings and meeting makers make meetings. You know? All these goofy acronyms you hear, now all of a sudden they were starting to make sense. Yeah. And it was the first time where I realized you're not good enough on your own to be sober. And you're not so special that you can be a one-man show and be sober. And that day, uh, you know, it's not a not to be exotic, like I say, but from that day on, it changed for me. Yeah. You know? We I, have also these turning yeah. points, whatever mm-hmm. they are, that, that and everybody remembers theirs, too, mm-hmm. you know? Yep. Uh, it's a... I, when I talk about it, sometimes it feels like I, like there's an arrogance behind it, but I know it's that's not what it is. It's simply just sharing what happened to me, mm. and this is this is my story. Did you grow up around here? No, I'm a Louisville guy. Well, well, here we go. The basic yeah. Louisville metropolitan area. Louisville, yeah, the Cliff Notes version. Man, you know, brothers and sisters. Here's the story: is that born and raised in Fern Creek. Uh-huh. My dad, uh, great parents. Dad was a vet. Mom was always a homemaker. You know, took care of the kids. But before that, my mom was married previously. Had two kids. Uh-huh. They're about twelve years older than me. Oh, wow. My dad was married and um, wrapping up, graduating from college, being a veterinarian. And I think that's a eight-year program. So he was a little bit later age-wise before he got out and and started opening up his first practice. But he was married and had three daughters. When my dad came to Louisville to buy, he bought a, a vet practice here. Uh, my mom was on the tail end of wrapping up a divorce from her first husband. And my dad was on the tail end of wrapping up his first his divorce from his first wife. He put an ad in the paper and said, I need some help. I need a secretary. Well, hmm. she came in. She'd never worked before. She'd always been a, she got pregnant early, just decided to be a stay-at-home mom. Long story short, there's some sparks that kind of, Started there, and they Super liked each cool. other. Yeah. Yep. My mom was getting out of a divorce because he was an abuser. Uh, he was a womanizer. And and, um, and I've heard that from his kids, from my mom's kids, sharing their, their experience. And my mom, he was an abuser mentally and physically. And by all definitions, from what I've been told, he was probably one of us. But I don't know that. I, um, my dad was on the tail end of the divorce just because, you know, he uh, for various reasons. Well, the one, and I'll tie into this later, but a unique situation was is that uh, right before they got their divorces wrapped up so they could sail off in the sunset together, my dad had a little predicament. And that was him being the stud that he was. He found out that my soon-to-be, his soon-to-be ex-wife was pregnant with his fourth daughter, and my mom was pregnant with me. Wow. And so what they did for the first 20 years of my life, they, Web, they, they led... The way they approached it was they led everybody to believe that I was part of my mom's first marriage. Oh, really? The reason they did that is they thought that that guy that she wanted to get away from would try to throw a wrench in the divorce. So as long as he thinks I'm one of his kids, that's okay. So for 20 years, that's the way it was. I was led to believe that was my dad. When my mom's kids visited them, it was just a unique thing. But long story short, 20 years later, it surfaced. We always suspected it. He was Italian. I'm certainly not Italian looking, so no one thought I was his kid. But that's what the story was. Huh. And uh, finally, about 20 years later, it came clean. But uh, well, I have a, I, a, a little stumbling block, though. You know, I mean, it, 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 we uh, 
one of our, you know, as a human being, we're trying to get a hold of our identity, mm-hmm. you know, what, who we really are. Yeah. And if you have some kind of thing that all of a sudden you are not who you thought you were. Yeah. You know, I used uh, to call him Rick, but he was my biological dad. And even make it worse, Dan, about nine or ten, I was with Rick all the time on our mini farm, right? We had horses and cows and quail pens and pheasant pens. You know, we even had some goats. We weren't as country as having hens and chickens, but, you know, that's all I knew. Working out in the barn with Rick, going uh-huh. to his vet clinic. Wow. About nine or ten, my mom, I walked in the kitchen one day, and she goes, Hey, um, Eric, would you, you love Rick? I said, Yeah, I love Rick. I, my definition of that was I'm with him all the time. I only saw the other guy who was my supposed dad when my uh her her uh her kids had to go on visitation i had to go with it to make the picture look good all three of your kids are coming to visit you so that went on for six seven eight years and i hated it and i won't go into it a lot of abuse there a lot of things a lot of nasty shit that kids shouldn't have to deal with and then i was the recipient of that and um uh just not a good guy and um so I always loved coming back to Rick. That was my safe world. That's uh-huh. what I loved. And uh, one day she goes, well, if you love Rick, would you like for him to adopt you? What eight-year-old or nine-year-old knows what adoption is, right? <laughs> and she described it as, well, um, you can call Rick your dad, and you can tell him you love him and all this. Sign me up. And most importantly, Eric, you don't have to go to that other guy's house. Oh, wow. Sign me up. So I did. So from that point on, they've already lied to me about who my real dad is, right? Now they've lied to me that my real dad is technically my adopted dad. So they're getting closer to the truth, you know. Um, but long story short, um, I had a great life and uh, growing up. And uh, we were a middle-class family. I never went without anything. My dad was big into private school. He went to Ohio State and military schools his whole life. He uh, wrestled at Ohio State. So he was big into education first. You're a student first and foremost, and you earn the right to be an athlete. And um, he was my idol. You know, um, I did everything with him. And um, I'd sneak out at night when he had a late-night emergency call to go to the vet clinic. I'd say, Dad, can you please let me go? And at 8, 9, 10, he'd sneak me out so my mom didn't know, and we'd hang out and do that, come home at 3 in the morning. And my whole life was him. My mom was the ultimate cheerleader, you know, just great. Uh, inside of that, I wasn't close to my mom's kids because they were about a 12, 15-year-old age gap in between there. So they're on to better things in their life. Uh, my dad's kids, being from Florida, they didn't come uh, and visit very much. Hmm. Now, mind you, the one my dad concealed. He didn't tell my mom about, you know, the last one. Uh, and the other ones just didn't come visit. So I was basically an only child, which was great for me because I got all the attention. And I'm, I, in my mom's eyes, I was the perfect kid, the golden child. My dad, he didn't have that belief. He, he'd call it like it was, you know. But I had a great life. Um, no alcoholism in my family, uh, biologically, any connection there. Huh. Um, my mom's grandparents, no, just great grandparents, you know, just normal run-of-the-mill grandparents. My mom and my dad's side as well. My mom and dad were the types when it comes to alcohol. There was never beer in the uh, refrigerator, you know. We kept one-fifth of uh, Maker's Mark in the hall closet that every Christmas I'd make a highball for my grandfather on my mom's oh, side. God. That was it. My mom and dad would get a $5 bottle of white Zinfandel from Kroger's or whatever it was back in the day. They'd drink half of a glass, and then three weeks later they'd toss that almost full bottle out. That was the extent of their drinking. Hmm. Um, it was just a great life. You know, my dad uh, taught me a lot of 
he was very big. We had eight acres, and from about eight or nine years of age, uh, I had chores to do. And that helped me a lot to where later in life with my kids, and even I could tie it into alcoholism too, but uh, I had four acres to cut every Saturday before his ass got home. The Jefferson County, Kentucky? That, yes, Jefferson and Fern Creek. And uh, I drove a, uh, about an eighth of an acre of push mower, a riding mower, and then a big-ass 25, 30-horse Kubota. And then every other week I had to go and bush hog about, bush hog about three acres of field. But see, back in those days, it was the most amazing life in the world to me. Yeah. I loved it. I loved it. You know, I love cutting grass, man. I went to my grandparents' house and would ride their mower all day long. Just loved it, and that was my life. My BMX bike, going across the street and playing local baseball, you know, at the Little League, and hanging out with my dad. That was really it. And, um, you know, I went into grade school. My dad, you know, preached uh, grades, you know. I was always an, an all-A all student guy, and uh, no ifs, ands, or buts. <laughs> he goes, that's your responsibility. And... Uh, Went to a poor man's Christian school, kind of a private school setup. When I went off to high school, I was loved sports. Anything with the ball, I loved. Anything. And um, my old grade school, all we had was soccer, and I hated soccer. Nah. So we were either going to go to the Trinities, the St. X's, the Bishop Davids, those type schools. And at the last minute, we went to St. X, and that allowed my dad to be able to drop me off in the mornings, you know, on his way to his practice. And um, all I wanted to do was play sports, Dad. Yeah. That's all I wanted to do. So I immediately started playing football. Um, and, you know, and I'll tell you this, I can tie some of this back later, is that, uh, you know, we all go to high school, you want to be accepted. You know, you want to fit in and you want to have friends and all be that. Be a part of. Yep. And I went to this school. I, I uh, didn't go to Catholic schools. Nobody knew me from parishes or anything like that. I'm one of 400 kids in my freshman class. I've never played organized football in my life. Mm. My dad took me out two weeks late to football practice and said, Hey, coach, I think I'd like for you to give my kid a chance. I made a mistake. Didn't know when tryouts were during summer, blah, blah, blah. And you know that movie, what's the movie? Uh, remember the Titans? You ever seen that movie? Yeah. The long blonde hit a guy who comes out with his dad, and the dad goes, Hey, give my son a shot. You know, I think he's okay. He's something. And that was what my dad did. Huh. They laughed at me. Where did you play any parish? I didn't play. Where have you played organized football? I didn't play. And they said, let's do some agility drills and some arm drills. And they said, oh, I knew I could throw it about 60 yards. My dad and I threw football every freaking day, my whole lifetime. And I knew from our one fence to the neighbor's pool next to us was 61 yards if I had, could get it in the pool. So I already knew what that was. And they were doing, bringing the upperclassmen in, you know. And I wasn't nervous because they were doing these drills. I'm like, if that's all I have to do is throw it there, I've done that a million times. And if he can only throw it that far, I've got him by 10 yards. They just haven't seen it yet. I say all this because... I'm like a normal kid. I want to be accepted. I'm coming out here. I don't know any of you guys, and I'm not Catholic. I don't know a soul in this school, and I just want to fit in. The way life works is next thing you know, they saw me throw. Next thing you know, I'm playing freshman. Two weeks later, I'm playing JV. Two weeks later, I'm playing varsity, which apparently at that school was unheard of. Nobody comes up to varsity at that kind of football school and does it. Three weeks later, I'm starting quarterback. I've got about an hour and a half of football knowledge under my belt. Damn. And next thing you know, we're going to the state playoffs, and I'm doing it because the upperclassman, uh, Jeff Hout, got hurt for our football team. And it was just by luck. And I say all that because I went from a kid who was probably insecure, wanted to fit in, be one of the boys, and next thing you know, it seemed like in no time at all, I was accepted because of that. You know? Yeah. 
So no time at all. Use the superstar. No, well, there was no I mean, none of that. You were, but you but felt you like mean, you you felt like you were there. And long story short is it uh, it was great to be that I mean, side. That's pretty miraculous jump. Yeah, but I dropped the ball in the classroom, and I'll never forget. Oh, I got really? my first midterm report. I got a one point seven five. I think I was number. Uh, I think I was three hundred fifty seventh on the low side out of three hundred sixty two kids. I almost flunked out. My dad saw it. He goes, you'll never see the grass of a, of a sports field. He goes, if you don't get your head out of your ass. He goes, you will go to Coach Glazer tomorrow morning and come up with a plan to sit there and correct this. You understand? I said, yeah. Sure enough, I went in. Suffice to say, I didn't have that problem anymore. You know, and I was able to sail through school and St. X and life was good. Played baseball, which was really the sport that I loved and excelled at. Um, never got in trouble. Didn't drink till my junior year at St. X, you know. Um, you know, nothing crazy with boys. We, you know, whoever was supposed to drive that weekend, we'd sneak a cooler in the back and go drink a few beers, get them from the liquor store over there on Popper Level Road. They'd yeah. always sell to us. Yeah. Even though they knew that we knew were 16. Where those spots were that you yep. could get served. We did that. The first time, buddy, that I ever got in trouble, alcohol related, was my last week before I went off to college. I went to a, a last-minute go-away send-off for all the guys, you know, in our group that used to hang out. The parents yep. were having a uh, go-away party. I had a couple beers, maybe two or three. I, don't, I know I didn't have any more than that, but for me, that was more than enough. Sunday night, I was heading out on Tuesday morning to go down to uh, WKU, where I went to uh, Western Kentucky University. I got pulled over in my 72 Super Beetle ah. and uh, pulled me over, and I got a DUI. And fortunately, I didn't have to deal with the wrath of my dad because two days later, I need to go off to college. If I had been in the same house with him, who knows how it would have been, mm-hmm. you know. Um, he took care of it for me and um, and kind of thought that was behind me. You know, I never made an association drink. I never had any drinking problems at all. You know, when I went off and played ball, baseball at WKU, all I did was go classroom in the morning till 11. Practice all night till six or seven at night. Studies, tutors, those kind of things, and that was a routine. I did not. I wasn't allowed to get in a fraternity. My dad said, "You worry about being a student athlete this first year, and then we'll see." So I didn't really. I had a nice little, you know, bookend on me. I wasn't going to get in trouble. You right. know, I enjoyed yeah. looking at the girls on campus. I enjoyed being considered cool because I played sports. I played rugby as well. So I'm, I'm, you know, I'm in the in crowd a little bit. College life's kind of smooth. I'm getting my grades. I got into a fraternity my second year, so that opens up a whole new spectrum of socializing and girls and all that great stuff. What it also did is it got my ass in trouble because I got my second DUI. Mm. And um, got it, uh, yeah, it would have been my first semester, my second year of school down there. Got my DUI, got arrested, had to put on the orange jumpsuit, had to spend the night in jail. The next morning, they put about eight or ten of us in a conference room, and uh, the prosecutor said, after reviewing your record, we're going to allow each of you all to plead guilty to first offense DUI. And I thought, somebody screwed up, but let me sign. Yeah. Right? And sure enough, I thought I was going to be able to keep that on the download from my dad. Obviously, I ignored the, uh, the plea deal, which was you can't drive. Mm. Obviously, I drove. Fortunately, I didn't get nailed on it. And um, and you weren't even drinking age yet. Oh no, I was a little shy so of that. Been yeah, twenty or so. Yeah, yeah. and um, hell no. And uh, so I thought I got away with it, meaning my dad didn't know it. You know, I scrounged up some money, 
and uh, I'd worked for some fraternity brother on a tree farm. It's down there, college and all mm-hmm. that. It's not like hometown. Mm-hmm. And, so and I never came fun. home. You know, between ball, ball and girls and this, that, and the other, I just yeah. never came home. Yeah. And when I did, he quietly said, uh, so you want to walk me through what happened? Oh, really? Yep. And um, he said, I'm disappointed. My dad never laid a hand on me. But my dad had a way, you know, have you ever known some people that they feel like they got to shout, scream, and holler to get their message across? And yeah. then there's somebody else who can sit there. They can just get their point. They carry a powerful voice. Yeah. But they don't have to shout. Well, you met one of them in there a minute ago. Mm-hmm. That's exactly as you're telling. You know, as I sit on the other side of the table and listen to what I call bell ringers, mm-hmm. you, know, you had two two DUIs before you were drinking age. Mm-hmm. Me too. Mm-hmm. And uh, you last did? thing, and, yeah. Oh, geez. Yeah, one was 16, and one was 19. And uh, but I just, you know, those were flukes, right? It's just I just was unlucky. Yep. And uh, and then that same thing with dad. Uh, I guess like looking back, what. I did not want to disappoint my father, was and it. he didn't need to use force or or elevated speech or any mm-hmm. of that stuff to let me know that I was that he was disappointed in yep. what I did, yep. and, and there was no other punishment was needed mm-hmm. to get my attention. No, he didn't, and um, I remember it pretty clearly, you know, and um, you know I think maybe in his eyes it was the first time. I don't even know if he wrote the first one off as a fluke or as a young kid being dumb, and now you got your taste of alcohol. You're smart enough because you're a Selby boy. You won't make those yeah. mistakes and again. And everybody drinks a little. You know, yeah. It's not a big deal. I think when the second one happened, I, he and I talked later, and I'll tie it in here in a bit, but long story short, he, he, he clearly got his message across that I disappointed him. And um, so I went back to school. I got hurt again, um, and I had to get another surgery for baseball. Being in a small town like Bowling Green, they couldn't do the surgery. So I came back to Louisville, and it made, they made it abundantly clear that after having this second surgery again, that probably not going to be able to play again. Mm-hmm. So it was time to forget chasing that, that goal, and mm-hmm. it was just time to be a student and work on my career. So that's what I did. I enrolled at UofL. I got my surgery and enrolled at UofL. Um, when I had my surgery, back in those days, you're talking 25, 30 years ago, you didn't have online schooling. So if you couldn't write, and I had arm surgery, I lost a semester because I can't take notes, can't do anything. So I had to make it up in the summer, and I did that. But I would basically go to school 7.30 to about 10.30 or 11. I'd go work at Foot Locker about three or four hours every day. And then I'd come home and study, and then I'd go to a routine of working at UPS Fuel and Airplanes from 11 to 2 at night. Mm. And I'd start that whole process over. Now, I fit in my Thursday nights, you know, to uh, or uh, Saturday nights and um, other nights to have my social hour because I like doing that with my buddies and doing all that. But not to, not to where you'd ever look at me probably uh, from the outside in and go, he's got a problem. You know, I'd have my one or two beers. I was always the one that said, hey, you need to stop and drink some water an hour or two before. I'll drive you home. Or mm. a lot of times I didn't drink. So I just thought I was a normal normal kid. Those were just really, that was bad luck over there. Yeah. Finished school. I graduated. Got my first job in a bank. So now I'm chasing my career, you know. And uh, I think I was, I don't know, 22-ish. Um, my dad gave me a thousand dollars. I built my first house because he didn't want me pissing away my money on rent. I've got a great job at a bank. Um, life's pretty good, you know. I work out every day. I'm trying to chase my career, you know. I got my friends, girlfriends. Life's pretty damn good, you know. Not getting in any trouble. I always had my routines with my buddies. Every Friday night was Joe's Bar up in Linden, and we play golf Saturday morning, and, and we just had it down. Never got in a lick of trouble. And then all of a sudden, um, 
start maybe about 30. And I'm going to take us up to about age 35 because 35 where's the rubber meets the road where a lot of my life, you know, got out of control. Uh, up until then, my career's taken off. Uh, i a senior vice president of a bank. I'm overseeing some of the largest lines of business in a bank. Man, I'm checking the boxes in my eyes. I'm, I'm just an amazing guy, right? And I got my zeros in the bank accounts are in the right spot and all this. I get to about 30, I got married. And um, I'm still just trying to continue to be successful in my eyes, with my career and financially and all this. And my partner and I acquired about almost 20 investment properties, single families and duplexes and fourplexes and built a big monster home in Oldham County only to flip. And mind you, I'm a Fern Creek guy. I'm not used to these big homes. Yeah. You know, that's not me. But I'm just doing it to continually acquire, thinking it makes sense. You know, this is passive income. And yeah. my uh, ex-wife now, my wife, then she loved it, right? And that's an incredible lifestyle from where she came from, you know. And I could write a check for anything. Life's great. And everybody knew me. I could rub elbows with some, a lot of the big wigs in the city because they knew who you were at the bank. At the bank. Uh-huh. And life was great, you know. And um, got married at 30. Um segued into about 35 and by 35 now i'm about five years into my marriage i have a one-year-old daughter at the time and that last year maybe around 34 best i can tell about 34 you know somewhere in there i noticed i was drinking more but i noticed that i was drinking more by hiding it because you know it's kind of funny you'll do shit you're aware it's like the kid who goes and steals bubble gum if he doesn't get caught, there's only two people that know what he did. You and God. All right. That's the only two people. The only other person that could possibly know is someone you fess up to or the person who caught you. So when we do something wrong, we know we're doing it yep. before everybody else. And I knew something wasn't right. I knew I had, I was drinking more often. Yep. I knew when I would drive across the Jefferson County line before Oldham went wet, I knew I would make sure to stop at a liquor store in Jefferson County before I got to my house. I knew I was hiding it in my version of a two of my, my workshop at the house. I had I had bottles everywhere. My drink of choice was vodka, um, and I would get the small half pints, you know, because those were hideable. But in my head, I started around 34, 35, just realizing you're drinking more and you're hiding it, and it started escalating. And then about 35, I was working at the bank, and there's a guy by the name of. Frank LaRock, he won't mind me using his name, but he was about 50 years old, and he was very vocal about being an alcoholic, working the program, hmm. and he was in the office right next to me, and I heard that, and I thought, could I be one of those people? No way. Look at me. I wear a suit and tie every day. I looked in the mirror today. I think I'm good looking. I'm smart. Look at me. There's no way I can be that guy. And I went over and show you what a coward I was, but yet I, I was getting a taste that I might have a problem was I said, hey, Frank, what's this AA thing you're talking about, you know? He goes, why you ask? I said, I got a buddy of mine that yeah. sounds like you. He goes, really? Get him to a meeting. Really? Where does he go? Well, obviously, I'm asking for me, yeah. but I can't let him know. Yeah, I right? got a friend. He goes, go over to a Token 3 Club over in DuPont by Village 8 Movie Theater. I did. And uh, that was the setup there, Dan, where they have interior tables in a... In a, in a circle and then you sit on the outside around the windows and the outside walls yeah i purposely got there five minutes late so i because i noticed if you got there earlier on time you sat in the middle and then they'd go around the room and ask you to read and you'd have to acknowledge who you were but if you hid on the outside you could get away 
back row sobriety. Yes. And I did it. And I remember showing up there. And I didn't see him. I'm like, good. He doesn't know that I came. Well, the next thing I know, he came and sat down. and And I think he already knew my story without even knowing my story. He said, where's your buddy at? <laughs> I said, I don't know. Maybe he's flaked out on me. Yeah, maybe he's like what you said, Frank. He's not ready yet. You know? So anyway, so that's where I am at 35. I uh, Life's been pretty good career-wise, life-wise, outside looking in, man, house on the hill, and all the material garbage. And I, in my, my eyes, I think I'm something. But I also know quietly without wanting to admit it that something's going on with this drinking. And at about 35, things started to fall off the rails for me. I, um, I had a job at a bank where I kept an office in Oldham County for the bank in downtown. And what a great setup for me, right? I can go from my house and go down the road, and I'm right there. I started rearranging all my meetings. I was far enough up the food chain where I could do that, you know? Yeah. I would cancel appointments with clients or meetings with coworkers or rearrange them. And here was my routine. I'd wake up every day, and I'd either hunt down the bottle that I hid the night before that I didn't finish, or I would go to one or two liquor stores right across the Jefferson County line, and I would put it in between my console and my seat, and I would do shot after shot. Probably had a pint in me before I ever got to work at 8 in the morning. In the mornings. And then by 10, I've kind of lost my drive to be a banker and to be responsible. And then I'd go out, hey, guys, I'll be right back. I'm going to meet so-and-so. And And I would go to one of five or six different big parking lots, and I would sit there and put my car in park, and I'd turn on 790 Sports Radio, and I would sit there and do shot after shot. And I would take a nap. And then I'd go back and set a a timer on my phone, and I'd go back about an hour, two hours later. And and I had all the excuses why I was missing meetings, rescheduling meetings, and that was my routine. That was my routine. You were in a position where you could cover your tracks. Yep, and And this is where it really hit. I walked in on every Friday was all the big wigs at our bank that would meet up in LaGrange at our main office. And um, we went in the boardroom, and that's where we have a meeting. And I noticed that only two of the big wigs, the president and the CEO, were in there. Mm. And everybody else that I go in with, they're kind of walking the other way. Well, just so you know, I probably already had a pint, pint and a half in me, you know, that day. And that's not a lot for me, or other days it's normal, I don't know. But anyway, let's suffice to say I had my buzz going and I wasn't all all there. And um, I won't say his last name, but Alex, who I tremendously respected and who respected me, I thought, and, and gave me the opportunity there. He said, Eric, I need you to come on in here, Dan, and I want to talk to you. <clears throat> he said, um, were you in an event for the bank, representing the bank last night? And I was. He goes, we heard that uh, you were drinking a little bit last night. Oh, no, 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 not me. No, that was wrong. Well, he knew the truth. I was just lying. And he goes, have you been drinking today by chance? No, no, not at all. He goes, well, what I'd like for you to do is go over to LaGrange Hospital and get a blood test. And, uh, of course, I I was devastated, right? What do I do? I've never been faced with this before. I've been getting away with this shit. What do I do? What do I do? So I I denied it. I refused to go there. Oh, did you? And um, I started walking my car. I gave him my keys, gave him my cell phone, gave him everything. He followed me. He said, if you get in that car, by the way, he goes, I've already called the police. If they see you get in that car, you're going to be arrested. And it was hitting fast. And um, my wife at the time, I'm sure she was... um, She had ideas that there's something going on with this guy because he's a different guy. Yeah. You know, and there's drinking going on. I'm sure she found some bottles and different things. But uh, yeah. I had a caller. 
and say, I need you to pick me up. And by the way, I'm slurring my speech because I'm drunk. And she knows that. And by the way, I lost my job. And um, so I went home. And um, I, like I told you, my dad, my dad passed away 11 years ago. So my dad was still with me during all this. Um, he didn't know about any of this. Didn't know about any of it at all. And I wasn't close to my father-in-law at all. And I resented the fact that my wife reached out to her dad and he showed up that next morning mm. and said, Eric, I need to talk to you. Well, you know, you'll listen to people's message if you relate to them. You know what I mean? If you don't relate to somebody, you'll turn them off. You know, and, and he was just, he's not my temperament. Not He might be better than me, but he's just not my guy that I'm going to go camping with, for goodness sakes. And um, he said, you need to get help and do this and he was telling me the right message, but it was coming from the wrong person. And um, my wife at the time left and, and lived with him for a while. So my two-year-old daughter at the time was with, with him. Um, I'm at a loss. I don't even have a car to drive, right? And um, I've lost my job. And uh, I still had my cabin down at the lake. I still have my big house on the hill. I'm still a member of the country club. I'm all this, and none of that matters because I felt as low as I could. And, um, but I still didn't think about, I didn't think I was an alcoholic. In my head, I just some bad luck, right? I was just drinking a little bit. How, what are the odds they caught me drinking that night? What are the odds they just caught me drinking today, this afternoon? I had lied to myself that this was all bad luck. Yep. You know, I didn't piece together. So long story short, I bit my tongue and um, I went to JDAC. I went down there for five days, maybe six days, and um, I remember they went through my little um, ditty bag, and they threw out some cologne and some different things because that had an alcohol base to it. And I was like, what the hell is going on here, you know? And I went there, and it's a four-man room, and I'll never forget. Uh, I, I'm still convinced I shouldn't be here. I'm better than these people. Look how he dresses. Yeah. You know, half his ass is hanging out, and I bet that guy doesn't have a job title like I do. Oh, that's right. You don't have a job time. You don't have shit right now. And you're just like him. And um, so I go there and um, I'm in this room and it's for people who are dealing with drugs as well as alcohol. And I've never been exposed to drugs before, you know, never dealt with that and really didn't understand alcohol. You know, I haven't been around a lot of alcoholics. Yeah. Other than maybe the guy in the mirror. And um, I walked into my room. We get one 15-minute break. I walked in my room to get something, and we get padlocks to put on our locker rooms, doors. Most people just have them hanging. This guy had taken all of our, four of our padlocks, put them in a sock, and he put his hand on a table, and he's beating his hand to break it intentionally so he could go get painkillers down at the university. And that opened my eyes. Holy shit, what is going on? You know, and it was a kid addicted to, you know, the, the pills. Um I think what I did during that time is I did go to AA meetings for the first time there, basically, you know. Uh, I'd already gone to some, you know, yeah. uh, at Frank's urging, but not much. Everything was regimented. I went, I didn't listen to them because in my head I was convinced I wouldn't want to. I just got to do this thing, get my wife off my back, get my father-in-law off my back. And I'm sure as soon as I get out, the whole city of Louisville is going to know I'm out of here and they're going to give me another job to replace the one I lost. Um the counselor who talked to me, I think looking back, if I'm honest, I told him what he wanted to hear so he would tell me what I wanted to hear, right, yep. which is you're not one of these people. You're so much better, which was a joke. Um, he told me his exact words were this, though. 
I do not think by definition you're an alcoholic, but I would keep a close eye on it. <laughs> I'll never forget that quote. Hmm. Because you and I now, as people who are deep-breeded alcoholics, we know that you either are or you aren't. Yeah. You know, And keeping an eye on it isn't going to get the job done. You know, So I left there with those words, convinced that I wasn't. But I was also going to prove them wrong. I'm going to go to an IOP program to follow this up for eight weeks. So I had to go in and give them a sample every week. And I'd go to a two days a week, two-hour meetings each time. Did that. So I've gone to your treatment. Did you cut off the drinking? Yeah, I cut off the drinking totally, and they did the pee test, so they knew if you were drinking. Uh-huh. So I went to my rehab. I got you off my back. And right. if you didn't want to get off my back then, I've gone to this damn two months of IOP, so get off my back. Yeah. What I did after that, and I don't know why. I really can't. I'm sure it was self-induced to get them off my back further. I didn't drink for two years. Really? Like two years, 25, 26 months. I'll show you. Yeah, and I, I don't, I can't tell you if I was consumed drinking then, and somehow magically I just didn't. I don't know. I know I just did not at all. I went to the Bahamas. My daughter was about five. My son was about two, and this is where really it started taking off. Hadn't drank in twenty five, twenty six months, and the first thing was my wife at the time. She was, boy, you remember when we used to be able to just sit out at the dock down at the cabin and drink a beer together. She goes, I wish we could do that again. Now, she wasn't pushing it, but she did say that. And that got me going. I was like, yeah, I wish we could, too. You know? Now, mind you, I've only been sober, not anything to do with AA. I just have lucked into 25 months run of somehow, someway, I haven't drank. And it was doing just what alcohol says in the big book it's going to do. It's just waiting to get a hold of you. You don't know when, but if you don't work it, it's going to get you. And it was setting me up. So what I did was, I thought, I'm going to show her I'm a great father, too. And we were on good ground at the time, right? We're on this great trip and blah, blah, blah. My son's, too. So about 12 o'clock every day, he's ready for a nap. My daughter's five or six at the time. She wants to stay out at the pool. I said, you watch Jenna Ray, and then I'm going to go, and I'll take Dalton back to the room for a nap. Well, that was it. But what I had already scoped out is on the way back to that eighth of a mile walk back to our condo or whatever, was that I passed three or four tiki huts where I can get multiple beers. Right. So I drink two or three along the way. He's sleeping in my arms, and I drink two or three by the time we get there. Plus, I take two or three up to the room. I'd have it all cleared out before she get there. She never knew. I did that for the last four or five days. And um, when I got back, that started. I drank beer a little bit, but I never was a beer guy. It gave me headaches. Hmm. So when I quickly got back, I went right back to the vodka. So this migrate to our mm-hmm. drug of choice. Yep. So by now what's going on is I'm kind of convinced, this is around 38, 39, I'm convinced that um, I had already checked out at this time. Our marriage was really unstable. Uh, I had checked out mentally a long time before that. You know, I had convinced myself that the drinking was my outlet because of a terrible, unhappy marriage. I was convinced that's what it is. Look at me. I got my job back again. I got another great job, uh, basically replacing what I had. I'm working at it every day. You know, I'm cutting the grass at our big mansion, and I'm doing all this garbage. I'm, I'm, I'm got it, but I'm starting to drink again. And um, so I'm about 38, 39, and um, the same cycle's getting ready to happen with another bank. And um, I, was, I was about, let me go back here. There was a lady that I dated out of college, and we dated for about a year. She had a three-year-old at the time. We lasted about a year because I didn't want to be a father. But this was someone that I just really, for some reason, I gravitated to. And we would talk every year, every couple of years, catch up, blah, blah, blah. She was on a tail end. I reached out to her again. 
She was on the tail end of a divorce. I'm entering into a divorce, right? The last year of my marriage, I wasn't faithful. Um, this lady had finalized her divorce, you know. We got back together and doing Spain. Here's how sad it is, though, Dan, as, as alcoholics, at least this alcoholic, is that I was to her when we got back 20 years later, that same amazing guy from 20 years before. The blonde-headed, blue-headed guy who looks pretty successful from the outside, looks like he's got his shit together. People will tell you all those things. He's got a gift to gab, and I like him. What she didn't know and what I was starting to understand was, I don't know if I'm any, I might be some of those things, maybe or maybe not. But more importantly, what I am is I'm getting ready to have to acknowledge that I'm an alcoholic. And this drinking thing is ruining my life. And I like you. I think I might love you. I look forward to a future, but, you know, but I don't know where my life's going to go because it's getting ready to blow up fast. But you know what? Even though I like you and love you so much, I also know this as an alcoholic. I can con you. And I can try to hide this shit from you because you're so new to this story, you're not going to pick up on it for a while. Yeah. We now, are the best con artists going. And that's what happened. So I, um, we were starting to, I was starting to live there and uh, finalizing my divorce. Hers was already done. She has no clue. And at the time, I was working at the bank and another bank uh, right up until this happened. I did my same routine, you know, rescheduling meetings, missing meetings, doing things. And all over Oldham County, where I, most of my clients were, I had all my hiding spots to go drink, doing the same damn thing. I remember exactly. It was a Friday morning, 1031. I remember when the cop knocked on my door, on my car, sitting there doing shots. I probably had a pint or so and uh, in me already. It's about 1031. He knocked on He goes, hey, what are we doing, buddy? I said, oh, just listen to sports radio. Yep, getting ready to go in the office. Got the suit tie on, right? He's got to know. Let's just let me go. Look how, who I am, right? He said, just step out of the car. And I did breathalyzer. And I got arrested for public intoxication. I had to stay in jail for three or four hours till I sobered up. They kicked me out. I'm thinking, this is all right. No one knows, right? My wife doesn't even know. It's 8 o'clock at night. I never get home till now anyway, right? I get home. What the bad thing was, and this is really when it went to the next level of you got a problem, is that out in Oldham County, they have their own local news channel. And my mugshot and my little story was put out there. Oh, really? What makes it even worse is there's a thing called Leadership Louisville and Leadership Oldham County where they take these highfalutin business owners or corporate executives, they put them in a program together, kind of like a, a semester on campus. And you go and rub elbows with all these highfalutin political officials and, and city officials, and it's a status thing. I had just graduated from that program in Oldham County, so I know everybody. And yet, a lot of the people I know are just putting my mugshot on the yeah, local right. TV channel. Yeah. So what that meant was by the very next day, my daughter had to have people when she was six years old come to her and go, your daddy was on TV, he was arrested. I was asked to not show up on campus for my daughter at her school. My daughter did this travel cheer kind of thing early on at that age, and I was told to not show up at that facility either. Or from there. And, uh, and then I have a wife who realizes she's been conned, you know, or not my wife, my soon-to-be ex-wife, but Stacy is starting to, I had to go home and tell her, I said, look, I, I quit PNC. She goes, did you really? I said, yep. I'm just ready for a change. I have all these rental properties. I'm going to sit there, and I'm just going to go. I have that 
compensation. And then I think I'm going to go into something else. Bullshit. You just got fired for the second time in two years, Eric, yep. because you're drinking and you're an alcoholic and you don't want to admit it. So I did that. I conned her for another six months. And then she started seeing the cycles at home. I'm hiding bottles and I'm not acting. My temperament's not the same and blah, blah, blah. And um, did you get remarried? Is it? I have not yet, but okay. I'll tell you. all just living together. Yeah, yeah. Okay. So we're living together, and we're trying to blend our families together and, and doing these things. And she's knowing that my story is not kosher. You know, she finally knows that I got. She loves me so much, and you know, we cause people to be enablers. You know, someone loves you, and I don't think she believed that I was an alcoholic. She just knows that I'm this today, and I'm so different from this person before. But I love this person. I'm figuring out what's going on with you. She didn't go buy me alcohol and put it in there, right? right. She didn't do any of that stuff. She didn't enable from that perspective. Right. But she was smart enough to know there's something going on that I'm scared to say, I'm pointing the finger at you. What's going on? And so I'm at this point, we're arguing a lot more. Life's not as smooth as it was at home. Uh, sometimes I'm not showing up to pick up my kids. Mm because I can't put the bottle down on a Friday before I pick them up at 6 o'clock. Those small things are, are happening. Um, and then all of a sudden, um, she said, you need to leave. And uh, I said, okay. And she goes, Eric, you got something going on with alcohol. And obviously so. So I went to the healing place. And I went in there and I checked in. And I thought, Dan, I was just all into this. Damn it, this is it. I'm miserable. I'm unhappy. I went in there. 22-man bunking unit is what it is. They tell you what to do, when to do, how to do it. Every second of your day. And I thought, I am a walking billboard of AA. I love this friggin' program. I'll show y'all how to do it. And after five days, I'm healed, and I'm going to hit the world, and oh my God, if you like me before, wait till you see me now. And I went out there, it lasts about four months. I did just some things that apparently are not very productive in terms of your sobriety. I never got a sponsor. I never worked the steps. I never opened that book up, right? I didn't do anything. And about four months into it, I hit my final slide. I went right back worse than ever. I was drinking probably close to a fifth a day. Uh, I'd wake up every day trembling and shaking like we all have. And I need to have that bottler. It's going to be a nightmare. And I had my rotation of three or four liquor stores. Um, I would go and disappear from the house and live in my car for three or four days where I call a buddy and go stay with him. She would try to outsmart me when I was really in bad shape, take my car keys, believe it or not, as embarrassed as I am to say, I'd get on my bike and I would go and go four or five miles away to where I knew a liquor store was and there was woods nearby so I could get my alcohol and go sleep in the woods. Mm. I did it multiple times. And then when I would sober up enough, I still, the bank hadn't taken away all my rental properties. So I'd go down to some tenants and get some tenant money, get my rent money, and it'd be enough to go again. I might disappear for four or five days more. No one knew where I was at, what I was doing. So really, I have no job. I really don't even have a home, right? My life is pure chaos. It's miserable. And it came to a head, really, when um, she let me back home. And uh, within a week, she came in, and what she found me was at the base of the steps of the basement in the pool of blood. Oh. I fractured my skull, never remember any of this, and was in, um, I was in a university hospital for a week. I had some partial memory loss, had some, some brain trauma, a lot of that, and a lot of things. It took a while to get back. It took me about six months to feel normal again. Wow. And her son had to see it first. 
at the top of the steps looking down to a guy who was, who had become her his father figure. He and I were as tight as my own biological children. And I made that kid see that. And I'll never forget that. To where, until we had a water leak at this house two years ago and had to gut the basement, that same stain, as much as we cleaned, the outline of that stain was there. Wow. About 30 inches wide. And I'll never forget that. And you can't make amends when you don't know how to make amends. You can't make amends and say you're sorry until you acknowledge what your problem is. And I wasn't there. Somehow I conned my way into another three, four, five months of BS in my way to live there. And it was a nightmare for her, nightmare for her kid, nightmare for my kids. I'm a terrible son. My, my father has passed now. Um, I can barely take care of my mom, but she needs me. I'm, I'm pitiful there. I'm a, a terrible partner in Stacy's life. I'm just, a, I'm just not, not the person I should be. Um, all of a sudden, one day, Stacy came to me for the second time. She said, I want you to leave. And don't come back until you get yourself fixed. I didn't care. I really didn't. You know, I'll go somewhere. I'm going to go in my car like I've done a million times. I'm going to go to my good. buddies. Yeah, I don't care I've where I'm going to go. for this moment. Yeah, you know, and I'm sitting here going, hey, I got seven bucks in my pocket right now. I'll find a way to con some more money. You know, seven bucks will get me through the night. And, you know, the way alcoholics are, we don't think long term. We just think in the next 30 seconds. Well, it gives them a fix to make me happy. And that bottle right there is going to make me happy. And I got enough to get that in my hand. So I did. I went on about two weeks. I went back to my mom's. Um, and my mom loves Eric, right? And she cannot believe Eric looks like this and acts like this. And she, she doesn't know how to address it. She, there's nothing that lady could have done for me yeah. other than open my door and give me a place to, to stumble into. And that's what I did for two weeks to her. Mm. When I would sober up maybe once a blue moon every two or three days, I said, Mom, today's the day I'm going to rehab. And are you really? Yeah, I'm going to go on down there and check it out. No, I'm not. I'm going to leave because you just gave me 20 bucks, and I'm going to go get some booze at Rite Aid. And that's what I did. Or I'm going to go to Gray's Liquors or whatever. And then I come stumbling home at 10 o'clock, and in the meantime, her and Stacy are calling each other going, hey, should we sit there and call the police because so he, before he hurts himself? Yep. They don't know what to do with us. So long story short, I did wake up, and here's what happened. I, um, I did that for about two and a half weeks. And it was, it was fucking horrible. You know, you get to a point where you're so miserable. You don't want to live. And I felt like that. I already told how I was going to go. I bought duct tape. I bought a hose. And I'd already figured out where I was going to go and hook that duct tape and hose up. And I was going to sit there and I was going to put it right in the window. And no one's going to know. And the reason I wanted to kill myself that way was because I was too much of a coward to put a bullet in my head. Right? And that was too messy. I didn't want anybody to have to see, see that. And I got to that point. You know, I think ultimately I'm too big of a coward to do either one of them. Yeah. You know, and I can't say it's because I'm such a badass and a zest for life that I'm just not going to do that. I just didn't. But boy, mentally, I was at that place. If somebody would have said, hey, here's a painless, cowardly way to leave. You mean to knock and flip the switch? Flip it. Let's roll. I couldn't really kill myself. But man, if I could die, that'd Mm -hmm. be a good thing. So, you know, I I woke up one day and I remember I was at my mom's and, um, I said, I'm going into rehab today. And she goes, are you serious? I said, yep. I said, I love you, and I'll be back. And it was one of these where it was kind of emotional, not from a tears standpoint, but I think she felt like I was being sincere. You know, he means this this time. And I was really, I, I wanted to change. I got, I, I was sick of it. 
I hated it. I hated to look at pictures of my kids and know that I'm not the father I should be. I hated to think how much I hurt Stacy. I hated looking in the mirror going, man, look at your business cards, man. It's got a lot of syllables, right? And look at these old checking statements. They used to have zeros. Now your zeros are on the other side, you know, and it has a negative in there. And look what you used to be. And you used to have a zest for life, and I had none of it. So I went down there, and i tell you exactly the way it worked. I went in there. I said, do you have a bed? He said, yeah, they have 22 beds in this unit. It's like an army barracks. I said, all right. I went. I had parked right alongside of the building. I walked back out. <clears throat> to tell you how serious I was, I went right back. I said, I'm going to finish this bottle right here because I got a little bit. I think I had half of a half pint. Is it a healing place again? Yeah. Took a swig of it, and, and I, that's all I did. I said, if I'm going in, I'm finishing that bottle. The 30 seconds it took, maybe two minutes, to get that, grab my bag, and walk back in, they said, somebody filled your spot. Ooh. I went right back to my car, went in, and I said, all right, what do I do? So I'm just going to sleep here, and I'm going to come in the morning. I went down to Gray's Liquor, got my booze, sat there, folded the middle seat of my expedition down, turned my sports radio on, I had blankets and pillows, slept, got my ass up the very next morning. Walked in, I said, do you have a bed? They said, yeah. I said, I'm here. I had already emptied all the bottles and all the shit out of my car before I walked in. I can't tell you how or why, Dan. When I walked in that door, the place smelled different. It looked different. I noticed the colors on the walls. I noticed the layout of the place. I noticed how many chairs were in the foyer. I noticed the size of the TV that we watched movies on. Everything was just in high def to me when I walked mm -hmm. in there. When you walk down the hallway, right side's your desk with the counselors checking in. You go through a doorway, and there's your 22-room room, uh, bed barracks back there. What I never noticed the first time is when you look on the left-hand side, there's about an 8 by 4 stretch, and all it is is pictures. And when you look closer, they're all obituaries. People from roughly 80s all the way down to teenagers yep. who I was on the path to be right where they were. And I remember going down there, and two things happened. I, um, I got one of these books before I went in, and um, I brought it in with me. And uh, the guy adjacent to me was a guy 62. His name was Fred, Fred P. He looked absolutely fucking shell-shocked. This guy looked like something out of a Land's End magazine, you know? He, you could tell he had a 30-year corporate career, probably was the CEO of the company, dressed to the nines, and he's sitting in here shaking and scared to death. And he's around drug addicts, you know, because there's a lot of those in there and a bunch of me's in there. And I said, hey, what's going on with you? My wife's left me. And uh, my life's just in shambles. I don't know what to do. Hmm. And he was the first person, like we talked about earlier. I saw him. I saw me and him. Yeah. And I'm not even sober yet. But I'm like, holy shit, that must be what I look like in human form. Because you're lost and so am I. And I told him, I said, I've been in here before. Here's the way it is and the layout and all that. And, and, and I kind of tried to chaperone him a little bit. But I tell you, something just took over me. I wanted to be sober. I fucking knew I wanted it. I mean, as, as, as fiercely as I'm saying it now, it's just like all of a sudden it kicked in. Hmm. Eric, it is time to be sober. It is time to sit there and quit pissing away your life. It is over. And we had to get up at 6 o'clock every morning, take showers, and then every hour was accounted for. I'd get up at 4 o'clock in the morning, so I didn't have to go and, and try to fight for a shower with everybody. But more importantly, I'd go out to one of these three tables. And I had the top left table that I liked out there. And I went through this big book, and I went through probably literally four or five highlighters over four days. 
and I had never read this front to back. Never in my life. Didn't know shit about this book. And I started reading, and I could go and get to page 72, and holy shit, that ties back into page 11. Let me go back there. Now that's making sense. And I go to page 116, and oh shit, that okay, that ties in. Oh, this one page says it's actually a disease, and it would talk about the chemical imbalance in your brain, and the predisposition, and the mental obsession to drink. Holy shit, this is a disease. You might have this thing. And I started reading it. And I had notes. I went through two notes. I was two pages shy going through two full notebooks in my notes. Damn. Tying all this shit in. On the third day, the counselor came and he goes, what the hell is your story? I said, yeah. I said, I just want to be sober. And I'm lost. He goes, you seem like you're legit. I said, I, I've been in here before. I've lost everything. And um, he goes, you stay right here. He brought somebody back. And his name was uh, Taven. C, but he's a white guy. It didn't sound like hey, you know, but he's a white guy. Came in and he said, uh, I'm a counselor here. And he goes, I run our uh, our 365 program down here for men who make a commitment to a one-year stay. And um, he goes, I want you to shadow me. Well, normally you don't do that. I mean, you follow the process every hour of the day. You go to meetings and classes and this and that. And he said, we don't typically do this. He goes, but I'll know if you're legit here a little bit. So I followed what he did during normal routine. He would sit there and meet with various men and gentlemen who were in the men's side of the, of the wing, and we'd do it. And then he just started telling me a story. And at times his story was tenfold worse than mine. And other times it wasn't quite as bad as mine. And I could relate on both sides. And then he talked about how he can't, hadn't seen his kids in six months mm. because he's not the father he should be. And that hit home. And we started sharing more and more, and I never opened up. I don't like opening up. I don't want you to know, I want you to think I'm a pretty neat guy, pretty special guy, but I want you to know my skeletons and my faults. I need to keep those close to me. And I started opening up to him. And um, finally one day he looked me in the eyes. He goes, you know what, can I tell you something? He goes, yeah. He goes, if, um, he goes I've never known somebody <clears throat> who stays sober who's a bullshitter. He goes, so until you want to be honest about your issues and your life, he goes, no other fellow sober alcoholic is going to be able to help you, son. And it started clicking. If I keep trying to put on a show and not revealing who I am, my problems, and who I really am, I'm not going to get it. Yeah. And I started talking to him. Long story short, Dan, is um, I went through five days. And um, after five days, he came up. He goes, you want this. He goes, and I believe in you. He goes, if not, I'd ask you to stay longer. Now, what I had done is about three weeks before I went in there, I'd asked Mark to be my sponsor. And obviously, I disappeared for three weeks drinking. You know, mm -hmm. he thought I disappeared off the face of the earth. I got out at five oh five. I remember exactly what it said on my watch. Got out five oh five, and I'm like, I knew I wanted to be sober. It was a totally different feeling than before, different than JDAC, different being there the first go around. And um, but I didn't know what to do. So I immediately I went to McDonald's by myself, got a hash brown. I called Stacy up, and um, I said, "Would you talk to me?" She's obviously very cold to me. You know. And yep. obviously apprehensive and not trusting. And, uh, but I was okay with that because honestly, in my heart of hearts, I'm like, that's okay. Because if you just give me a chance, I tell you what, you're going to see that this is legit because there's some good shit's going to happen down the road because I'm all in on this. This is different than before. And I knew that I felt mm. it. I didn't know how to do it, but I knew I, I, I had the juice in me. I wanted it. And, um, I went to that first meeting with Mark. I walked up to him and I said, hey, I asked you to be my sponsor about three weeks ago. He said, I, I never thought you would have made it. 
I said, well, I'm in it. What do I need to do? And um, at first three, four weeks, you know, we went through steps one through three, which are pretty easy steps. We know, you know, it seems like the rubber meeting the road to me is step four and five and really start clicking, you know. And um, everything was fine uh, up until, like I shared with you earlier, day 30. I just woke up one day and I didn't want to do it anymore. So I went from wanting it all in to I just didn't. But 30 seconds later, it's like God was saying, he goes, no, this is how it works, man. I'm, I'm driving. I'm the lead driver. You're just a passenger on this ride. That's sobriety. And after that, things started to take take shape. You know, I um, I called Mark every day as he suggested, which I hated. Yeah. I didn't like going to meetings every day, and I didn't do it every day, but I went to a lot of them. I didn't like staying at meetings early or leaving late. Yeah. I just wanted to get in and out. I actually hated going to meetings for the first couple of months. I, I would go there and had an attitude that, holy shit, so-and-so is going to talk no matter what the topic is. Yeah. I can't stand them. And... And then all of a sudden, things started changing. I look forward to going to a meeting. I felt better when I would leave a meeting than when I went there, you know. And um, I started looking at people differently, you know. I, I started realizing, man, people come up and put their hands on you and just want to shake your hand. They want to put their arms around you and ask how you're doing. Uh, the VIP table, if you go into the uh, uh, the, the clubhouse there, the uh, token, not the token club, but the Serenity House, if you're looking up at the podium, back left table over here I always called that the VIP table because when I first went there they were always so happy and smiling made me sick you know how in the hell are they so damn happy here yeah. and then I realized too. I thought I kind of want to be like those guys you know and uh, so we started working the steps you know and um, it was maybe three or four months into it I got to step five and um, I'm doing what I think I'm supposed to do I'm going to meetings you know I'm not, I don't have any desire to drink I have zero desire to drink. I can go past my old Rite Aid, and I don't care about going in. I can go and go past the liquor store. I don't have that. But I didn't realize I didn't think I was fully engaged yet. And uh, when I did step four and five with Mark, you know, um, sharing somebody your faults, I've never done that with anybody. Because, and I'll share here in a minute, I'm going on seven years sobriety, you know. And I thought when I came in this program, Dan, all it was was finding a way to put down that damn bottle so you don't fuck your life up anymore. You know, that's what I thought this whole program was. And I'm fortunate. I've strung a few days together, and, and hopefully I'll get another one tonight and tomorrow and seven years and ten years and this and that. But I've realized so far that it's not because of me. I don't take a lot of credit for being sober. Yeah, I don't. Uh, I finally started shutting up and listening. Uh, I finally started realizing that my opinion really doesn't matter a lot of the time. I don't have to speak to be heard, you know. There's a lot of wisdom around these rooms, and you need these people for you to stay on this path, you know? Yeah. And it's amazing when you just stop and slow down. The goofy acronyms you hear, now they actually make sense. Yep. I you know? Them. And I look at people now that I couldn't stay on that first 60 days, and now they're the people I look up the most. Yeah. Big Jim, you know, 44 years of sobriety. I tell you how stupid I was. When he had 38 years of sobriety when I first came in, in my head I'm like, I can't wait to sit there and catch up to him. Uh, well, based on my lifespan, probably, I'm probably never going to catch up to him. But he's become somebody who's not my sponsor, but a mentor. You know? And when you and I, you know, I remember when you and I met one of my, inside of my first year. You know, I had you by a few months. You know? And you came in, I was like, he looks like a successful corporate guy. Huh. You don't have to live under a bridge to be an alcoholic. Yeah. You know? And you always, you seemed excited. 
you know, that was the energy is what I got from you, you know, plus relatively new. And we only talked a couple times in the parking lot, you know, but I remember Dan, you know, I remember Dan. And then when I ran across, I was like, there's Dan, man, he's always got some energy to him. You know, I liked it. And what I love is seeing people, you can tell when you finally get to that place where you're really engaged in this program, you're in it to win it, you know? And I looked at Big Jim quietly. He's just he's by example. You can tell he's yep. in it. In yep. different people, but you were one that jumped out to me. I thought he's got it. He's got the fever, man. He's in this thing, yep. you know. And well, he I've is walking the, shift, the talk. You know, similar to your story, you know. One day, all of a sudden, it did. But you know, I tell you what, I went. So there I am at the time, though I'm sober. Um, mind you, I was arrested for public intoxication. I lost my job. So just because you're sober doesn't mean shit. You don't have a job. You don't have a paycheck. Uh, I'm trying to rebuild with Stacy, which is great. Um, I thought, hey, I had started getting the recruiters calling me back because, see, when they would pull my background at these corporate level finance jobs, I'm a controller now. So, but they're not. They're going to see what's going on in your background, right? I'd get an interview and I wouldn't hear anything. And I remember life seemed to be tracking right. I um, we're. Personally, I'm back at a better place. I'm sober. I remember going to this company. I met with the two CEOs there, CFOs. They said, you're who we want. Eric will be following up in a couple days, expect something from our recruiter. But I thought, look at this. The pieces are coming in place, right? I'm back. I didn't hear anything for three weeks. Mm. And uh, what's going on? Well, if you don't work, you don't have money. So I'm just a sober, poor guy. That's all that I am. And I started feeling insecure about myself, right? How can a man feel secure when you can't contribute, you know? And um, come to find out, even though uh, my public intoxication public intoxication charge was there, I'd filed the paperwork for it to be expunged after three years. It takes 60, 90 days for it to clear Frankfurt. So it was still on my record. So I rushed going in and interviewing because it wasn't on my record. So long story short, I finally get the job I'm at now, and I've been great, and life's life's great but let me tell you where I failed and um, I'm great I'm thankful that I'm sober Um, I'm thankful that I have friends in this program that I never would have been friends with before you know some of the people that I'm closest to now are because of this program and the people in this program Um, my way of thinking certainly has changed um, I'm closer to being the son I should be I'm closer to being the father that I should be um there's more days that I do right than wrong. All right. You know, I love helping somebody else stay sober. Yeah, me too. I love it. And it's amazing. Early on, one year into this, Mark said, hey, guess what a year is? He goes, now it's time where you get your head out of your ass and you keep your eyes and ears open to help a fellow alcoholic. And he said, it's going to come in different ways. Might be different all the time. And I'll never forget this one kid that I'd seen come in and out a half dozen times. And uh, one day we were leaving, it's raining outside um, Serenity House, and um, this guy's just totally different than me. And uh, it's pouring. And I, I said, something says go to that guy. And I said, uh, hey, um, what's, your, what's going on, buddy? Where are you going? Oh, I'm going back to my halfway house. Really? Well, how far away is it? Oh, it's about a mile up the road. I'm not trying to stereotype. I said, you walking? He goes, yeah. I said, why don't you let me give you a ride? Now, 30 seconds before, I've probably told myself in my head how I'm a thousand times better person than this guy. I don't need to sit there and, and interact with people like this. And we got in that car, and I'm going to tell you, it was only about 20, 25, 30 minutes. 
And just to hear that guy, he gave back considerably more to me than I gave to him driving him there. It humbled me to know his story. Yeah. You know, you see the person that weighs a thousand pounds and you see him eating 10 cheeseburgers. We might look at them and go, put down the damn cheeseburger. Right. What you don't know is their story. They might have lost a loved one. They might have had this kind of abuse in their life. You know, we judge people from the outside without knowing the story. And I did it to this guy. Long story short, sponsor him. You know, and that's the way it works out. Yeah. 30 seconds before, I would have never given him my time. And that dominoes effect, boy, it's amazing how you sit back and look at this program, you know, um, big picture. But where I've failed, and I tell you this, this is uh, for me. I'm sober. I haven't gone back out. I'm, I'm very thankful for where my life is. You know, I got zeros in a bank account that I didn't have. I don't have to stress about paying this bill or that bill. I can be a father and a son that I need to be. But where I didn't use the program, I think, enough is that I thought it was just a a tool to put down the bottle and not drink anymore. But what I didn't use it as a vehicle for is to look at myself and be transparent about what my flaws are. And what I realized is I'm a very insecure guy. And I'm somebody who at times, because of my insecurity, I want you to think I'm more than I really am. And... It's one thing if you want to do those kind of things to yourself because you're only impacting yourself. But when you do that to the extent that you're doing that to others and you hurt others because of those things. And I didn't realize. I think what it was, I was sharing you all that, uh, you know, had the big house on the Hill Country Club memberships, all the money in the world. Life was great, right? You know what I realized? I didn't realize then, but I realized in looking back, that was my artificial bar of who I was. That was my bar of my self-worth before alcoholism got a hold of me. I didn't realize it. You would have never heard me say anything about those things, but subliminally in my head, I equated that person as that guy. Well, where are you at today? I'm here, a little lower than that, not quite back there. So to fill that void in, I want to embellish or try to be more than I am because I got to fill that void because anything short of that bar that I had from years ago before alcoholism hit, I'm a failure. I'm not I'm not good. I'm not good enough. I'm not good enough in my personal life, in my relationships, you know? And I couldn't understand why. I got to a point where I would lie about things, about who I was and what I was. I'd tweak and twist it. You know? Now, I'm five foot ten, blonde hair, blue eyes, I'm not six foot four and Tom Cruise. I mean it's pretty factual who and what you are. But somehow, someway, I wanted to tweak and twist and embellish it because I needed to cover that shortfall because right. of my insecurities. Yeah. And I hurt Stacy. I've hurt other people because of that. And in the last six months to a year, I woke up and it's like, what are you doing that for? Accept who you are. Do all that you can if those are things you want. One, I realized very important. Those things aren't important. No. That bar that I made for myself doesn't matter. No one's ever asked me since I've been sober, hey, let's go back in time. Did you have this and this and this and this? No one's ever asked me that. You know, what they've come in, if it's in this program, they've asked, hey, could you sponsor me? Can I get your number? They've never asked about my bank account. They've never asked about the size of my house. They've never asked about my job title. They don't give a shit. And if they don't care about that, then I shouldn't care about it. You know, I should care about helping people like that because those type of people are the ones that helped me get seven years under my belt. 
or attempt to be sober. So it was eye-opening. I felt like a failure about a year ago or so. Um, and, and even more recently, thinking, you try to be something that you're not. And if you want to lie to yourself, that's fine. But what you don't realize, Eric, is when you've done it, you've done it to a degree where it's impacted others and you've yeah. hurt others. And that's something now where I've realized the program is, for me, I, I want to be sober. It's my vehicle to be sober. But i got to look pretty honest at myself. And I want to be honest about exactly who I am. Because the next person that wants to be a sponsor, when I sit there and try to work them through the steps, you know, I think that's a big part of that. Accepting who and what you are, you know, and let's find a way to sit there and make yourself better. Yeah. You know, I just thought it was a vehicle to get sober. Yeah. I so think it, it looks could like be so much more. It looks yeah. like a, and that is all our motivations when we get here. It's basically just to put that down. But mm-hmm. there, it just goes so much further than that of, uh, you know, the truth was I had no framework for how to do life. Mm-hmm. I had zero framework for how to do life. The only thing I did was picked up what I saw other people doing, and one of my measures was, is what did you have? That's, you know, so that would it. aim for having stuff. Mm-hmm. And, and you know, and I was also, and I think I heard you say this in different words, you know, one of the things was I could say, you know, two cars in the garage, a nice house, beautiful wife, mm-hmm. yeah. 2.3 kids and all yeah. that. And I could say I have this, and people who have this problem don't have this stuff. And was able to lie to myself and and tell myself, even though, like you said too, uh, I believe you deep inside we all know it. Though you know, when you got to spend that time in the mirror, like you said it earlier on, or real early in there about you know, we do know there is that knowing inside of us that says uh, you're not on the path, dude. You're not who you're not doing what you should do. You're not being who you should be. Well, we kind of like shake that off, you know. You it's do. like wet hair, you, you know. You just and, and you just trudge right back into whatever happens to be next because I can't face that on my own. I can't. I don't have the ability to look at that. You I, don't. I don't. Uh, you know, early on in sobriety, I remember maybe a year into it, I um, I knew I was all in and I loved it and I loved the taste that I was getting to this program and I just wanted to, you know, I want to get another bite of it. Yep. And um, you know, but that doesn't. I tell you what's painful about sobriety is is you know, I, I got so thankful. You know, I got kids that were, that love dad now, and I'm the same dad on Monday as, yeah. as I am on Thursday now. You know, and I'm not the, I'm just that guy, and, and, and as best I can try to be, and and I try to be the friend. I'm a consistent friend, and that's where you get back. But I tell you what is, you know, early on in sobriety, it's really tough because I remembered somewhere around, I don't know about maybe 60, 90 days. You know, when you're medicating yourself with alcohol to numb all the problems and all that, the great thing about being sober is you're sober. The bad thing is, at least for me, is that I started getting clarity and the sense of all the pain that I caused. You know, the bottle wasn't there to numb it anymore for me. Yeah. You know, and the clarity of what I did. Do you realize you don't have a job, Eric? And do you realize if you don't have a job, you can't pay child support, you can't go take your daughter to Wendy's? And that's how bad it is. Yeah. Do you realize you don't have enough gas on your own merit today without asking someone to give you money to go down the street to Walmart to go shopping? Oh, don't even worry about doing that because you have no money to go shopping. You know? And, oh, by the way, did you realize that you did some dishonest things to your mom and you made some more choices? So that clarity gets overwhelming. And it did for me. And I remember talking to my sponsor, Mark, and said, I'm, this is about maybe, I don't know, three months into it. I said, 
Mark, I don't know if I can ever get this. He goes, well, I said, how can I ever make up for all the things I've done? He goes, and one of the best quotes he had, he said, uh, well, let me tell you this. There's not anything you've done that someone else hasn't, number one. And two, he goes, that's why we sit there and make our amends or attempt to do so. He goes, you're not always going to be accepted open arms. But he goes, what I'll also tell you is, he goes, if you allow yourself to be anchored down in the past, you'll never move forward in this program. Yeah. And it's right. You know, and so, you know, it's been great. But I tell you, I'll tell you one cool story. And, man, this is, you know, you have these moments where you go, this thing's a good thing. I'm going to stick with it. Um, I was one year into my sobriety. And uh, <clears throat> my daughter does travel cheer. It starts in October, goes all the way to, she travels from October to May. She calls me one day on a, on a Wednesday. She goes, hey, Dad, you know what this Friday is, don't you? I said, you got, a, you got a competition this weekend up in Indy, right? She goes, yeah. And I do a lot of things with baseball at different levels, and uh, so I'm traveling a lot myself. So anyway, I said, um, yeah, you got your competition. I said, I'll get up there. I said, I won't be able to get up there until Saturday. They'll understand because i got to be back for baseball on Sunday. i got to be back here for, for baseball for Sunday. And she goes, no, Dad, I didn't care about that. She goes, you know what Friday is? I said, yeah, you're going up there. You have to do your all's practice before your competition. She goes, no. She goes, it's the fifth, Dad. I said, what? She goes, it's the fifth. It's one year. Mm. She had programmed into her phone that that was my one-year sobriety. Yeah. I didn't have a clue. And she's done that every year since then. Huh. Now, she's getting ready to turn 17. And it's as important now as a girl approaches 17 as it was, you know, seven years ago and approaching 10. Yeah. And um, we've had a lot of talks about it, you know. And I've told her I've apologized so many times. And I said, and I, I shared this with her. I said, I hope you can understand when I share this with you, Jenna Reyes, is that on my bucket list of life when I tried to draw it out, I wanted to jump out of airplanes and have millions of dollars and be healthy and never have cancer and live to be a thousand years of age and all that, my bucket list, like we all have. I said I never wanted on my bucket list one, one item to be an alcoholic. And uh, below that, I never wanted on my bucket list to cause you pain or anybody else or be disappointed in myself. But I said, and she stopped me. She goes, Dad, I think we're closer because you're an alcoholic. I was trying to formulate those words because I don't know if we would have had some of the conversations we've had you know, if it wasn't for that being the reason we were talking about something. Yep. And it's, it's my bond with her because of it's been pretty neat. Yeah. You know, there's, they're teenagers, right? Sometimes dad's not cool. They don't want to talk to you. But some of the times we've had deeper conversations, it's tied back into something related to, you know, my walk in sobriety. Yep. And it's been awesome. Yeah. You know, um, but ultimately now being sober, I love helping people, you know, I've got coworkers that reach out to me, you know, and I think I was I got sidetracked, but about a year into it, it was the first time I ever was confronted where someone outside of my home, my my in my social circles, my workplace, and, and things that I'm involved with, where they said, "Hey, I heard that you may have an issue with alcohol," you know, and I I had the thought in my head that I don't want them to know this. Because look where I've got my footing back again. So now you all should look at me like I was before all this shit happened. You know, I don't want you to know about me being an alcoholic. I just want you to know about what I look like in your eyes right now. Mm -hmm. And I thought, how foolish is that? And long story short, somebody came up. He goes, I heard through a friend of mine that um, you go to AA meetings. And it was kind of one of those moments where God was saying, yep, you can veer to the left. 
you're getting ready to screw up, or you can dive in. You said your ass is all into this program, so let's prove it. And I remember I said, yeah, I do. Yeah, I've been going there for about 18 months. It's been great. It's been a godsend for me. How can I help you with it? Well, can I talk to you sometime? Sure. Why don't you sneak on up to my office this afternoon? Next thing you know, I'm sponsoring that guy. Yep. And 30 seconds before, I didn't even want him to know that I was involved, right? Right. Yep. You know, and it just is a domino effect after that. I'll tell you what, the more you give back to this program, it gives back to you tenfold. You know, it... Um, That's pretty much a key for life in general. Mm-hmm. What you put in, you get out. And this program is the highlighter of that it is. particular thing. You know, it and, is. Uh, over and over again in the book, it says, you know, when you have this problem, turn your attention to helping somebody. When you have this problem, turn your attention to helping somebody. When you have this problem, turn your attention mm-hmm. to helping somebody. Yep. <laughs> it's like, hold on. The answer is the same on all my problems. It is. You and know, I remember one of This the... is helping somebody, and it doesn't necessarily have to be, you know, maybe it ain't alcoholism today. Maybe it's uh, helping a neighbor move a fucking pile of rock. Yep. Or whatever yep. it's, you know, who what it is. But any time that I put my, life, my precious life's energy mm-hmm. into helping somebody else... Uh, I grow from it. I, I set down me, this self yep. thing that's been the thing that's yep. defeated me all my life. And if I put it into somebody else, then, then uh, dividends come. But that ain't why you do it. But it's a, you know, it it's is. a, it's a, you know, the motive is never. I'll help you, and when I do that, I'll get something from it. That's never the motive. Uh, mm-hmm. And it doesn't come, you know, never never peaks out that way. But, like, after the fact, how many times I can see, like, problems get solved for me for this. It's like a karma thing. You know, uh, whenever I do that, and, and, I, you know, and, and I only ever see it in the rearview mirror. I never see it ahead of time. It's only after the fact you go, huh, I'll be damned. Look what happened there. You know, I, you know, I still... You know, we all, I guess we all do, but I can just speak for me. You all have some level of ego and arrogance and all sure. that, you know. And as things started getting to a great, you know, a better path and you're and, and re- trying to recover and get your life back, you know, there was a small part of me that thought, yeah, look what you're doing. And, you know, it's amazing when you get deeper in this program, it wasn't about what you're doing. It's about what God's doing. Yeah. And it's amazing. The more I took the emphasis off of myself, doors started opening. In a lot of different ways. Yeah, you get a job and you're doing that. Yes, you're making money. But doors would open where it was presented to me I could help so-and-so. And then, because that door is opened and you op- you open the door for them, and they're giving back to you tenfold. You know? It's just the first time I ever called Mark when I was probably 90 days into it, I was complaining about Stacy. She's doing this, doing this, doing this, doing this, doing this. And he, he and, and what I expected, he was going to come back and go, yeah, damn it, we need to sit here and get her ass in gear, you know? And he listened to me for about four or five minutes, and the only word he said, he goes, I heard a hell of a lot of eyes in that. Yeah. And he did not tell me what I wanted to hear. Because, damn it, I just talked to you for five minutes. I validated why Don't I'm... you understand? Yeah. And, you know, it's kind of what you just said. You know, everything he comes back to, it's not about it's not about me. You know, and I, I remind myself, all right, what can I do for somebody? What can I do? What can I do? Because sometimes you get into yourself, and the best way you can get out of it is just to get out of it. What can you do for someone else? Yep. And at times that's hard. But I'm going to tell you what, it just gets easier and easier. 
yep. you know, and the God payback gave me is an occupation where I'm doing that, yep. you know, and, mm -hmm. and it's a it's an odd dynamic of me going in and helping people. I'm fixing people's broke stuff, mm -hmm. and it and it fits that same niche, you know. It's a different thing, but yep. it is, you know, and I'm getting paid for it. Yeah, so there is payback for yeah. it. but that 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 spiritual energy of helping somebody still is there, and I can feel it, and I can also feel the connection i make with these people who mm -hmm. i you know it's crazy but i my my clients begin to be like i walk away from those same clients i told you earlier that you know i go in and i the fix connection. somebody's stuff yeah and uh and i walk away feeling like i got a new friend not a new client yep uh you know i've been around stacy i've been together for oh goodness 10 11 years so her mom and dad have been amazing to me they've seen me when i was the alcoholic you know when i didn't have a job and she kind of let them know what was going on. Yeah. They never confronted me with it. They just did little things to give me some side jobs around the houses and this and that. Amazing salt of the earth people. The, her dad is about 68 years old and he's got two homes and he's renovating one. He can't do it. You know? And I know what needs to be done and I know how much work it is between the plumbing and new water lines and sewer system. This is and all this stuff. I got to do it. Uh, and it's been neat. You talk about how you get close. You know? He's always been a great guy to me. But, you know, I obviously don't have my dad. And I said, Stacy, he's never going to be able to get the repairs in this house done at all. So I've had to go and gut bathrooms and floors and reshore and re everything. And I tell you what, I've loved it. Because it's been, for me selfishly, it's been like a replacement to not have my dad. Mm -hmm. You know, we talk at a different level than we do. He tells me stories from way back when versus just generic BS, you know. But more importantly, behind it, I leave there all the time going, Hey, Eric, you and I both know he wouldn't be getting this done if it wasn't for you. And I'm not patting myself on the back, but it's just to me, it feels good that you're doing it for somebody. Mm -hmm. And, man, I just love being there talking to him, you know, knowing that it helps. And the other day I left there, and he's kind of one of these quiet guys. He's funny as hell, but he's not going to say I love you. He's not going to give you a pat on the back for anything. You know, he's just a hardworking guy. So he comes up and um, kind of looking down, he doesn't want to make eye contact, you know. And... Um, it's one of those, you, you tell somebody's going to say something, they don't know how to say it, they can't get it out. And, um, did you get something to drink, boy? Yeah, I did. So I know that's not what it was. You know, and he goes, um, be careful going home. And he turns to walk away and he goes, uh, yep, we both know I couldn't do this without you. Be careful going home. But to him, that was like a big hug someone would give somebody else, you know. Yeah, yeah. I need you, Eric. And I, and I left there going, Eric, you know, there were times you were so arrogant and pompous, you wouldn't worry about helping him yeah. because you'd be so into you, you know? And honestly, I'm still the same self-centered, selfish guy I think I always have been. But through the program, you realize that you got to tweak that, man. There's a better you in there than that. And I never made the association giving is actually giving back to yourself a lot of times, you know? I mean, it really is. I've yet to go, and I mean, not that you're right. You don't do it for anything to be paid back to. I don't think I can't remember last time I've done something for somebody. When I know it was the right thing to do and be there for them, give them my time or energy for them, that I don't look back and I'm like, hell, I feel richer now than I did before. Yep. You know, because of what you actually did for me. And I thought you were the one that needed the help. You know? And once you get a taste of it, man, you get that juice, it's kind of hard to... You know, you just yep. build from it. Yep. You know, um, I enjoy it. Yep. I enjoy it. Yep. And, you know, and, and 
truthfully and honestly, there's absolutely nothing that I derive more satisfaction, self-esteem, uh, that fills my spirit. There's nothing more than walking somebody through this work. And in that particular thing of helping another human being, uh, you know, to, because you know where you were at, you know, I know where I was at and I know where this guy's at and I know that he can have a new life and, 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 you know, and ultimately that's like, you know, I get to some level, I get to change the world. Mm-hmm. You did. I change the world around that guy. Yep. You know, yep. and I'm not doing it. That's not what I mean. We all know when we yep. say that, that's not what it is. Yep. It's it's this program and God's work in people's hearts and that kind of stuff. That's what does it. But I get to be an instrument in the master's hand and, and hand it off to people. And, uh, you know, there's always, when you, when you pal around these programs and you talk to people and the people that have the juice in their life and you can tell it, you know, you don't have to talk to them for very long at all. You'll see that common denominator that they're all passing it on. You know, I remember when I started getting a taste of wanting to help, or I guess it was a light bulb moment. You know, at first year for me personally, it was just, I got to stay sober. You know, sure. I'm going through the steps, and then Mark says, now keep your eyes and ears open. And um, I didn't know, how do you do that? You know, I just didn't know. And then it, it, things just open. You just do just that. Keep your eyes and ears open. But, you know, one thing, this is what really made me get clarity about just, it's all out there, Eric. Just keep your eyes and ears open. It's there. Um, and I remember who it was, and he said, hey, uh, Eric, he goes, uh, somehow we got on what our prayer life is, you know, how do you pray? And he goes, how do you pray? I said, oh, I pray every night before I go to bed, and I pray every morning before I start my day. He goes, how do you pray? And part of me was even at that, maybe two years sober. And I was like, who in the, what's he, what's he inquiring? This is kind of getting a little personal. But it didn't buy us. He goes, let me tell you something that I realized that really helped me with my prayer life. I said, what's that? He goes, you don't don't answer me. I don't want to know. But he goes, when you next time you pray, ask think about how much time. And he goes, consider how much time you you spend asking God to do for you, versus giving thanks for what He's done for you. Yeah. Well, I started doing it. And I started realizing I'd sit there and pray, and I would go down my laundry list. God, can you help me with this? And can you lay your hand on this? And can you help me with this? And boy, I interviews tomorrow. I'd really love to really ace that one. And can you do this? Believe it or not, in the first two years until that time, I'd never asked, I never said thank you to him for being sober. Never. Never thought about it. You know, the smallest of things, you know, I was, I never took the time to, to think about it. Gratitude element. Yeah. And I remembered it was, here's the very next day. Uh, I did it that night. And here's how goofy this can be is that I went from my office down at U of L, went down to the same guy who cuts my hair downtown center of downtown Louisville. And uh, as I'm pulling up, I'm like, son of a bitch. I left my wallet or my debit card at the office. So I have no money to pay him. Right? And no sooner did I start to pull into a, a meter, I start realizing, hey, I used all my quarters last night at the, at the car wash. So I don't even have any, co- any coins to put in the meter. I can probably tell him I'll come back tomorrow and pay him. But either way, I don't have anything. In five seconds. I get out of the car, I'm like, well, let me see if there's any time on that meter. I get up there, there's an hour and five minutes on that meter. I only need 30 minutes. And about that time, while I'm looking at the meter, I happen to reach in my pocket and add $25. It's probably been in there a month. You know? My point to it is, I never would have thanked God for that, right? I didn't put that money there at yeah. that moment. I didn't put that meter with, with change in it. 
Those are the small things I never used to appreciate in life. Never did. And now I can go and I'll look for those goofy small things. And it seems for me, the more I appreciate those small things, the more energy and juice I have to say, hey, maybe you can make a moment like that for somebody else. Yeah. You know? And it's, you know, some days you feel like you're really impactful. Maybe other days not as much, you know? But I enjoy it. I don't have the sponsors level of sponsors you do and, and some others do, but uh, through work, through baseball affiliations that I'm, I'm involved with and things, I've had people reach out and say, hey, I heard about you and your story with alcohol. Can mm-hmm. I talk to you? And it's been those kind of moments. And these are people that I wanted them just to associate me as this baseball guy or this successful guy over here. I don't want you to know about that because yeah. that's a bad. No, that's fine. You know, that's part of my story. Yeah. And if I can use that story to help you, and uh, and I, I love it. Yeah. Once I started doing this podcast, the only anonymity I might have thought I had is it was out, out the, the window, window, wasn't it? And uh, and that was a thought. You know, that was definitely something that I talked to my sponsor about. About you know, that, hey, I don't know about this, and I've always been pretty open about it. Yeah. Uh, it seems to give me more opportunities to help people the more open I am with this. You know, and. Uh, this whole thing's a practice. It's just like uh, the practice of medicine or practice of anything else. You know, these things, if you practice that, it becomes a working part of the mind, as the book says. You know, in my prayer life today, and I've said this a couple times here lately, you know, uh, everybody talks to themselves, right? We mm-hmm. talk, we, I mean, we have a, a dialogue going on all the time. Mm-hmm. I think that's thought. You know, I'm talking about stuff, trying to figure out how I'm going to do this or how I'm going to do that. And, uh, and I've reformatted that where when I'm talking to myself anymore, I'm talking to my higher power. Mm-hmm. I, I, you know, that's the way I look at it when I'm talking to myself yep. and I'm getting ready to start to do something, you know, and I'm asking God to help me figure out the best way to do this. And, that's right. And uh, when it when it goes right, you know, I, I go, well, thank you, you know, and yep. I, then I thank God for helping me get it to do go right. And even, even if it don't go so right, I still thank him and, and, uh, it becomes, you know, a, a real practice, and it, it's a it's a rearranging of your entire mindset of how you're going to do life. You know, um, you know, instead of beating myself up or thinking of my own abilities, it was going to get something done, tossing the tossing the credit elsewhere. Mm-hmm. Um, and you know, positive attitude. You know, mm-hmm. that's grows from these little successes and stuff. You know, yeah. it's another big hard thing to get with when you're working with somebody new. You know, it tends to be that they're they're braced for the worst all the time. And uh, and I think we manifest that. You know, if I'm bracing for the worst all the time, then that's what's going to happen to me. Mm-hmm. Uh, if I brace for the best, then yep. that. But that's a mindset thing, and it's hard. It, to, it, it takes a lot of practice, you know. And even, it, you know, even, you know, it's in some respect, I feel like I've been sober for a while. In another respect, I feel like I've been sober just a minute, you know? And ultimately, the sober part really had very little to do with all this to some, you know, it couldn't be here without being sober, but I'm unable to form those mindsets and make those rearrangements in the way that I operate if I'm fogged up Mm -hmm. under this blanket of what that alcoholism Mm -hmm. stuff does to you when you're buzzed up. It's true. You said something already, you know, it, it numbed to bad. 
problem is it numbs the good too. It does. So you can't really feel good about something when you're when you're fogged up like that either. And uh, and it takes a lot of time, you know. Guys get, you know, feel you like you said a couple times during your story about you know these ninety day, six month periods where you feel like you really, you know, you got a handle on it one minute and the next minute you don't. Uh, it does. And how how little, how long did you spend getting to this digging this hole I'm in, you know? And and we wanted to we want to be able to dig right out of it quickly. And uh, I, I will now have, you know, I have actually, you know, um, reconciled myself to the fact that this is a lifetime thing. Yep. You know, there was a time when I thought, and I, I, I think I heard you say something similar to this, too. I heard those periods of sobriety you had, you know, and we'll pat ourselves on the back for the two years. Yep. And, uh, yeah. and what if it's six months, four months, two mm-hmm. years. Uh, but I would always fall back to my old stuff eventually. Uh, without some kind of framework like Alcoholics Anonymous, without these 12 steps to, to lean on, um, that getting my mindset around that I'm going to do this the rest of my life. One day at a time, though. Mm-hmm. <laughs> you know, I remember coming in and, um, I remember, I mean, honestly, day one. All right, I'm sober. And I like I say, I knew I wanted it. I knew it. Had no clue what that picture looked like. And I'm scared to death. Because, all right, I'm, I'm going to go to talk to that Mark guy. He's apparently going to be that sm- sponsor thing, right? I'm going to ask him to do that thing. Apparently, that's what you do. It, mind you, all behind all this, I know I want it. I know I want this, but I can't visualize what this thing is. And so you're apprehensive. Day 30, I remember going into Rite Aid, and this is a funny, stupid story, but 30 days into it, probably would have been a day after, uh, it was the day before I felt like God had said, hey, you're a backseat driver. It was that same few days before. I remember going into Rite Aid. Didn't even think about it. Pulled right into Rite Aid. I've, I went to this place every day and got my vodka. Every day. Lied to Norman, the guy who was buying the cash registers, and said I was buying it for my foursome that we played golf with and we all like doing shots. That was for me, and he probably knew it by then. Yeah. Right. I went in there. I remember getting some mouthwash, a couple other things. Right. Just normal routine things. I went up there. He wasn't there. I gave it to, paid it, and got my car. And this is how goofy this is. I get in the car. He was like one of the greatest achievements I've ever had. As I, I, I just said, "Holy shit! You just went into Rite Aid, and you didn't even look at the alcohol, pl- you know, shelves, and you really got a toothbrush and a paper and something else, and it was." The, that was one of my steps, man. I'm like, you're in this. Yeah. You're going to get it. Because I was able to do that and not even be mentally obsessed and have that compulsion to want to drink. You know? But, you know, let's be honest. Sobriety is can be tough. For me, sobriety was tougher to initiate it and start it that day one oh, yeah. than it has been to sustain it through this last six, seven years. Yeah. They say it's a hell of a lot easier to stay sober. Once you're in it, get sober. Yeah. And I look back, I was a walking time bomb when I went to JDAC post, you know, coming out. It was a joke. My two years of self-imposed sobriety was a joke. The 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 disease did just what it was supposed to. It was just waiting. It was just setting me up to get me. Yeah. The first time that I went, I was a walking billboard of how not to work the program, so it was going to get me. You know, and I think we have to do it wrong. In order yeah. to figure out how to do it right. And 
I mean, like I say, I just knew, but, you know, I look at new people coming in, and um, you, you don't you wish there was like a, a 30 second vignette you could show them and say, in 30 seconds, I'm going to be able to take away all your uh, worries and concerns because this is probably what you feel like now. Here's what you're going to feel like here. And now just envision yourself here five years, two years, one year down the road. But you can't do that because you just have to you have to work that process and trust on your sponsor, trust on the program. And you have to be engaged and be ready to dive in, yep. you know, um, and to meet those people where they're at, too. Yeah. You know, I would I get uh, I derive some joy when I hear somebody come in and they've got some trouble. Mm-hmm. Like when somebody actually has some real trouble. Yeah. Uh, yeah. It's a weird thing because I'm happy that they got some trouble because that's usually the motivator yeah. to get better. Yeah, it's court ordered. You know, the worst that something tweaks me every single time is when somebody comes in and says, I'm here for myself. I know, you know, I'm, bo- I'm volunteering. I'm just coming in for myself. I'm like, that's probably not going to be enough. <laughs> uh, and I understand like the, the, what the, what they're saying is, is that nobody's making me come here. Uh, but I find people are more successful if there's some pressure on their ass, making yep. them be yeah. there. Uh, yeah. A DUI, mm-hmm. uh, I'm gonna lose, I lost my job. Yep. Uh, yep. My wife's kicking me out. Mm-hmm. Uh, and you do need those, you know, and you know, what's sad though. There's some people who get those, you know, have those experiences and they go back out. Right. Yep. But yeah, it's no magic. I remember hearing your story, right? You know, hey, I'm I'm this engineer. I'm successful. Life's good. I'm doing this. I'm doing this. Next thing you know, I get in trouble. Next thing I got, I got an ankle monitor, and I'm looking at some time. Yep. You know, now everybody on the outside world, if your khakis were over top of that uh, uh, bracelet you had on, you know, they wouldn't know any of that. Nope. And they don't know the struggles going on in that head. That you're just a ticking time bomb, and it's life's yeah. life's tough, and it's getting worse. Yeah, I'm showing you know? up for work day after day after day, pulling my pant leg down so nobody will see my ankle bracelet because nobody oh. there knew. Because I'll be honest, first time I heard it, I was like, "Holy shit, that's the greatest fucking thing I've ever heard." Because it, I, from the perspective of, "Oh my god, that can happen to him, that can happen to me," you know. And he looks like I do. He looks like an average guy. He's got a good job, and he works, and he's doing the thing. I sure as hell didn't look like the dude that I was. That Jekyll and Hyde stuff in there is really true because what my antics were behind the curtain was nothing like the persona I was putting forth to the world. You know, at nighttime, slipping around, breaking in houses. I remember I heard that, and I thought... Boy, what a story he's but that's got. That's not, uh, you know, if you just, you met me anyplace else, there's no way you'd believe I was doing that stuff. And it helped me con. It helped mm-hmm. me stay out of some trouble. Because uh, yep. I got, I think back about how many times I got caught. I actually had a, you know, uh, you know, there's a piece of me, the ego was trying to tell me that I was good at that. Fact was, I got caught a lot, but people took pity on me and, mm-hmm. and gave me chances. And with a promise to go to rehab or a promise yeah. to fix myself, yeah. they wouldn't drop the dime on me and get me into real trouble. I uh, think back sometimes, you know, what if they'd have got me in trouble earlier? You know, we can't can't guess that stuff, but but I wonder. Uh, so that gets back to that thing when I say, you know, when somebody's got some trouble breathing down their neck. Yep. Uh, it gives them what I heard a uh, favorite speaker of mine, Scott Lee, says, you know, if I could give anybody anything when they walk in the door, it'd be a five, 500 milligrams of desperation right in the rear end. Yeah, and, that's uh, damn good. When you're, that is when damn you're, good. When you're desperate and yep. you're reaching for that flimsy reed yep. like a drowning man kind yep. of thing, that's what gets people sober. You know, I think back then, I mean, that somewhere around 35 is when I started getting a taste that there was problems. 
You know, it's pretty typical. I don't know what it is about that thirty middle thirties to forty range is when we. But you know, inside of that, I was pulled over. I never got a DUI during my run. I mean, I had those two before. Yeah. You know, same here. But during my big run, you know, from say thirty five ish to to when I finally got sober this time, I got pulled over twice in the same day. Hell, there was one time I know I had a uh, uh, almost a fifth in me, right? I was one time I got pulled over within inside of 10 minutes of each other, inside of a mile of one another, and got out of both of them. Yeah. Not because I'm special, and I know if I would have blown, oh, my Lord. Another time I got pulled over by an undercover cop in a Myers parking lot. They, I'm trying to leave. They came in. One, car, one guy yanked me out of my car. The other one got in the car, drove me to the back end of a parking lot with four other squad cars, brought a breathalyzer in. Thank God. I blew up. I was right below. I think it was point one at the time, and I blew like a point eight six or a point nine six. Legally couldn't, you know. And fortunately, I had somebody just look. I look across the parking lot. There's one of my good buddies. He's leaving Myers. I said he can take me home. I got out. Yeah. Could have easily been a DUI, another sip of something, you know. Those others should have been a DUI. Or maybe 10 minutes so, earlier. Oh, my Lord, I had one time with my kid. I mean, all those stories, and I think how fortunate I was to not have to experience the pain. But just what you said, I wonder, what would I have been sober sooner if I would have got that arrest yeah. or yeah. got whatever? It's a, you know, again, it's a dangerous to go into those what, what, what ifs and shoulda, coulda, woulda kind of stuff. But I do think about it often if I'd have got more trouble earlier. Uh, you know, I got that. I had a DUI. I was 16 the moment when I was 19. I got my third one when I was 38. 38. Which I, so I went 19 years between my 19 year old birthday and my 38 year old birthday. Jeez. And because you. Uh, it gets into some of the stuff that comes to light lately, you know, with the privilege talk and all yep. that. Uh, I, I've got it. I've come to grips with the fact that i had some privilege I, if you had a little money in the bank yeah. and you could pay hire a good lawyer oh yeah and you could pay the fees yeah. of the alcohol classes yeah. and you could do all that or yeah. you could skate yeah. on those things and not take the full brunt of it sure but if you didn't have that stuff you're gonna those oh, yeah. are the guys that end yeah. up spending time yeah. over a dui yeah yeah and uh and i was always able to do that with the privilege that i had of uh being fortunate in most places in my life. You I know, look back, I mean, I have a job in a... I haven't dwelled on those, but I, I think about those times I was pulled over by cops. I was thinking times where I I got pulled over in various parking lots by cops. What are you doing here? Stacy yeah, having to call you, cops to hunt me down. How, uh, you had this little thing where you would go in these public hiding spots. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Parking lots. Oh, I thought, I mean, every single day during that eight years or so, that was my whole routine. I woke up every day. I'd hunt down the bottle that was half full from the night before. Most of the time I couldn't remember it, right? Even though I put it in my magical hiding spot for the yeah, morning. Put this someplace I won't forget. Yeah. You know, when I got sober, I'll be honest, if I could have cashed in all those half-empty bottles and they were worth something, hell, I'd be a millionaire. I would have retired ten times by now. But I found them, oh, for a couple of years after. Yeah. I'd find them here and there, things you never would have thought. I it found was, a 35-millimeter jar full, uh, not full, but pot, just... Yeah. Months ago. Did you really? Yep. In a fucking box in a closet. You know, I'm rooting around looking for something, and here's a little 35 millimeter, and that's... We always took a lot of pictures, so I've got a bunch of those little yeah. cartridges because they're good for putting up, but there's probably some sitting around here with some screws in them or something. Yeah. And, uh, 
and I'm rooting around. Don't and you I just see shake your head, head, man? And I look at that and I'm like, God dang, man! It's yep. been sitting around and think too, man. How many times, maybe potentially, that I was jonesing for some and didn't have any. And well, yet know, I still did have some. I just didn't know where it was at. I shared that uh, story about my daughter, but I tell you, this was one I was about uh, three years sober, and um, I had. Uh, both kids were with me, uh, Jenna Ray and Dalton, and then uh, Stacy's boy wasn't with me. So anyway, we pulled up at my mom's. Uh, Jenna Ray's sitting in the front sheet, and she has a stern voice, like a parent voice. She goes, uh, "Dalton, uh, you go in. Will you go in and see Nanny? I want to talk to Dad." Well, mine, she was probably I don't know, uh, twelve at the time, twelve, thirteen, and but it was like she was using the voice like a parent would be to discipline their yeah. kid. Uh-huh. And uh, he gets out of the car, and she says, uh, "Well," and gives me that look like. What's this? And she opens up the middle console. Well, you know those little, mind you, my, my drink of choice was either, uh, most times she saw a ton of those half-pint bottles of vodka, right? Red label, the cheap $5 bottle, the clear the clear bottle, about yay big, you know, with the top. Well, I had a, uh, a hand sanitizer, a pump of hand sanitizer that was almost the identical shape. Oh, yeah. It was in the middle console. Well, how sad is it? Her immediately recollect, her immediate recollection was yeah. when she opened in there to get some money or something out of there was, he's drinking again. Yeah. And I opened it up and looked. I knew that's exactly in a nanosecond. That's what she was thinking. And I kind of chuckled. She goes, it's not funny, Dad. Hmm. And what it did was, it re- I was so happy, I was so disappointed that she had a memory that made her think that that was that. But on the flip side, I was so glad to be where we were at yeah. to where... I said, do you want to take another look at that? And she looked, she goes, oh, she goes, Dad, that really scared me. Mm-hmm. You know, so on one hand, I caused that pain. And on the other hand, fortunately, she was at least able to have some assurance that, hey, you're not. Yep. You're still on yep. the path. I remember my kids coming around. When I was stumbling around in that little period between when I first came to AA and, and my current sobriety date of seeing my kids' eyes, when they would come in the house, you know, and I'd divorced by now, and and they would scan my perimeter, you know, to see if there was a bear can sitting there or not. You know, they would, I would see them, and I would see them do that. And at the times that there was, you could see their countenance just drop. Yep. yep. You know, they're mm-hmm. like, oh, you know, mm-hmm. if I could hear their minds, they were mm-hmm. like, oh, fuck. You know, that's what they're yeah. thinking. And, I uh, didn't realize my daughter. You think they don't know? No, you think my son was young enough. Dalton didn't know any of that. You know, he, you know, my my daughter was about sevenish, and um, so she was aware seven eight, so she was fully aware. My son was too young to, to do it, so I got off easy with him, pers- relatively. But Jenna was aware, you know, that Dad's moods change, yeah. and he's different, and he's this and that. My ex-wife gave her a, uh, <coughs> a hidden cell phone. And it was given to her. I never knew about it. She didn't share this with me until after I became sober. Dad, if ever you got bad, I she could had, call uh, mom. And I look back, and there was, a couple, there was a couple of times where Donna came and picked up the kids. Hmm. You know, and it's sad. I mean, I, you know, we've all, I, oh, I know I've done it. Friday yep. nights, I know I have to pick up my kids. And boy, I can't put down that can't damn bottle. Yep. Can't do it. Yep. And, you know, but. Um, 
I sat there, I was sober for a while once. Uh, I went to pick up the kids from my grandparents, and I was just I was just in a little bit of restless, irritable discontent. I wasn't drinking, or and I was in pretty good shape, really. Overall, it was just one of them periods, just where it hit me, and I was a little snappy, and I was I was probably rushing to get them on time and all that, you know. I probably had some place to take them, and we were probably mm-hmm. running late to get them there, and all that. And uh, out of the blue, Carissa says, "Dad, do you have a meeting tonight?" And then I mean, really, it's my daughter, and uh, it just snapped me, man. And you know, she's eight, nine, ten, or something like that. And I don't think that she necessarily was given the message that I heard. Gotcha. You know, yeah. I really don't know. It might just been a timing thing, and she was just wondering if all with everything we got going on yeah. tonight, are you also having to go to a meeting? Yeah. But what I heard, you know, was you're acting like an asshole, and maybe you need. <laughs> and to get, you know, that's what they're need, saying. Maybe you need to get to a meeting. I think that's what God was saying. Uh, I really think the little girl was someplace else, but the message was there. You know, generally, like tonight, I had both two. I had all the kids there at the house, and then uh, Dalton had to go to one of his buddies' house, and then generally had practice. I said, "Hey, how about we get your mom to come over here and pick you up and get you to practice?" She says, "You can't take me, Dad." I said, "No." I said, "I got something a related." Well, what are you doing? You know, and she actually was. Well, no, she was just a meeting. She was at one of those speaker meetings, so she knows a little bit of the lingo. You know, I said, yeah, it's kind of a speaker meeting. I said, I'm going to be the speaker, you know, and she was, oh, really? And she actually asked, you know, and it's just funny. Eight years ago, that kid, if you would have brought up anything AA or alcohol related, she would have been scared to death because yeah. she would associate her dad's a bad guy. Yeah. And he's not the guy I need for my dad. Now she sits there and is at least inquisitive enough. I said, oh, yeah. I said, somebody I really like today, he does this podcast thing and blah, blah. She goes, really? Where do you see it? And I actually saw I said, it's right on Spotify. It's right there. She goes, that is cool. She goes, you're going to be on here? I said, yeah, I'm going to be on TV. I'm almost a celebrity, Generate. Yeah. When I come home tonight, I am the shit. You know? Yeah. And we were laughing. But just, I just love that she cared enough to ask him. Yeah. And it was enjoyable to know that that same girl, seven, eight years ago, I didn't do that for her. Yep. I know that this thing's having an impact in some directions I would have, you know, in some directions I would have never even thought about. Um, you know, some of my kids' friends listen to it. Do they really? And, uh, and if nothing else, it's seed planting, you know. There's well, another one. necessarily going to prevent them from oh, doing anything. Oh, I'm not going to do it because it's somebody who does it. There's another one similar, not as good, because I listened to all yours, and I've gone back There's and forth. There's a lot of recovery but I, there, there was another one that I thought, you know, I interchange them. But I would say when I'm in the office five days a week, I would say at least three, four days a week I'll listen to them. And I've listened to many of them many times over, you know. Cool, I listened to That's the one, is it Holly? Yeah. I listened to that one over the other day. I'd already heard that. And then um, I got sh- cut short when you talked to the women's uh, group downtown. When I did, I taped myself at the women's yeah. healing place. I said, uh, I'll listen to that one. And, uh, yeah, for me, it's perfect. That's one of my favorite ones. And uh, and it's neat, yeah. you know. I feel like I carried the message in a very powerful way that night. You know, and you did your job. And you had an impact on somebody. Yeah. I, you know you touched somebody. Yeah. yeah. You know? Yeah. Yep. You know how embarrassing it is. I remember the first time I talked, uh, Mark said, would you come and talk to this church out in, or this group out in uh, Charlestown? And I talk with work. I talk to groups maybe quite a bit. It could be 20 people up to a couple hundred people. So I don't mind talking to groups of people. What I do is I'm not a paper sh- shuffler. I go and give me the topic, and then let me, I will go and put two to three bullet points down off that topic, and then I work from there. You know, and I, and I just do it from, from my memory. But I know that's what my working from, and then we'll work from there. You know. Hey, Eric, you want to give your testimony? Sure, I'll give my testimony. 
You know how sad as it is. Now here, think about it. All we're doing is talking about our life, right? What it was like, what happened, what it's like now. You know, and trying to create that picture yeah. for the benefit of a new, you know, someone chasing sobriety or someone who's got long tenure, just trying to, to get back to this program. As vain as I was, I'm making bullet points. But not only the bullet points, is I want to make the bullet points to where the message that I'm sharing on each of those comes across to Dan and everybody else that you almost forget that I'm an alcoholic and I want you to leave the room just coming, being overwhelmed with what an amazing person I am. <laughs> You know, that's what I wanted you to feel. And I just thought, man, you still got it, Eric. You're still vain. You're still arrogant. And it was early on in sobriety. It's maybe, I don't know, a year into sobriety. And I, I laugh now that you even would have that thought, you know. I came here and what I prayed today was you'd be 110% honest. Yeah. You know. And Not authentic. You know, just, just share it because you don't know there might be one person. He's going to take the time to listen to this podcast. And if he has a little bit of an inkling to help him, job served. Yeah. It's a little bit of a cliche in a way, but it's still, it's, it is the truth, you know, because if you can just touch one person, then your job is done. And, it's true. And every single time I, I know that, 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 I know that happens. Uh, oh, I, I think what you've done here, buddy, is, is awesome. And it's I like, fun. I, I think it's awesome. And I wouldn't, you're never going to have a, uh, a need to chase down speakers because I would like yeah. to think that it's just going to be a revolving so, door all yeah. the damn so time. I'll pick the perfect niche for a podcast because uh, alcoholics love to talk about themselves. So. Oh, they do, <laughs> you know. And and I, the first time I came across, I'd never heard of that such thing. I, I would have never thought of, of that type of vehicle. And for me, I get I get my dose of AA more through this podcast than I do meetings. Hmm. And I would even say that now it's changing. But during, obviously, the pandemic, you know. But now I have my regimen of meetings I like to yeah, go to. Yeah. And like you were talking, hey, do you, how do you want to do this? You want to do it Zoom? You want to do that? And I'm, I, I want to sit and see, touch, and feel. Yeah, me too. You I know? would prefer to. Thank you for doing that. Yeah. You know, this is the first uh, this is the first face-to-face podcast I've had since early days in the pandemic. Really? Yeah. Like it's, yeah. Uh, you know, I've had a couple things where I've been with somebody like at a, at a retreat or, or various other little things like that. But, uh, but this is the first, I had to like, I used to keep all my podcast equipment in a Rubbermaid bin underneath the bench. Did and you? I would just jump, I would just, and I have a couple of time lapse videos on Facebook where yeah. I, would, I would set up my camera and time lapse it. Yeah. You know, in about nine seconds, yeah. I got this thing turned from a workbench to a podcast <laughs> studio. And, uh, and and the stuff migrated inside on me. So when I was getting ready today, uh, I had to, I was like, man, I sure got my podcast and stuff in a mess because I had all packed it inside, you know. Oh, I mean, it was. Uh, I, 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 this is the first face to face podcast in the wood shop. This that I've done. Whatever gave you the gusto to do this, buddy. I know I speak for me, but for many, many other people. It's just an awesome vehicle. Well, thank you. It is if you an amazing. You heard vehicle. at some point it was a group of us thought, from some crazy reason, people at Spiritual Underground thought we had something that maybe was worth sharing, and yeah. we started talking about doing a podcast, and so we got run. together, we made a date, and we all got together at Heine Brothers over on Bargetown, Douglas Loop Heine Brothers, and uh, and there happened to be twelve of us there that day. That I'll just showed dead. up. Anybody's interested in doing this, being part of it, whatever. Me said Heine Brothers, and there was twelve of us, and we did a first couple episodes uh, at a guy's. Uh, he doesn't want to be on here, so I'm trying to work around his name. Yeah. Um, 
at, at a law practice yeah in a in the conference room we did the first couple of them there and you know there was like eight nine people wanting to be a part of it and then, but really quickly and i say this say alcohol's got a lot of startup not much follow through yeah and true. uh and before long uh everybody didn't have time for it and it is time consuming yeah there's you know when we get done here i'll have time that i'll have to produce this thing yeah. and put the music in yeah. and do the stuff with it and all that and and i really had a heart for keeping this thing going and uh, and so I just kept on pushing that. It's impactful, away. Dan. It is very vulnerable feeling to like put that to like the first time like you got a half a dozen podcasts and you yeah. go out here on this thing and yeah. launch them. Yeah. And then promote it. And and I don't do much of that, but you had to do some of it. Yeah. And uh and to to put yourself out there that because we all deal with that. Who am I? You know, I'm one, that there's another old cliche that says we're an egomaniac with inferior inferiority complex. complex. Yep. Uh, and that's yep. true, you know, yep. because in one regard I'm an egomaniac, you know, and in another I'm going, who are you to be, who do you think you are putting out a podcast? You know, who are you yeah. to do that, you yep. know? And uh, luckily the big, biggest miracle in my life is my sponsor. You talked about yours quite a bit tonight, that he would coach me and, and, and uh, encourage me to do things like this, you know, yep. and probably without his support, uh, this would never be a thing either because I could never get off a of zero and, and, and push out and do it. And, uh, and he listens to everyone and he's another one that, that's like, Hey man, what's going on? But he gives me the latitude too, that, you know, if you need a break and you get, uh, last fall, I had another little dry spell where I just wasn't having gas. Plus I was deer hunting a lot. So yeah. it was hard to make both yeah. of those things yeah. happen. Yeah. And, uh, and I just don't worry about it. You know, there uh, was a time I made, when I first started this, I made a personal commitment, you know, like to God and to me that I'll put out new comment, con, new content every week. Once a week, I will have some new content. And, uh, and I did that for like 18 months or maybe yeah. longer, you know, yeah. and, uh, and I think I missed two weeks prior to COVID. I think there was two times when I didn't have something and yeah. COVID hit. And, you know, there was a time when I'd just do a little monologue sometimes, too, and just talk. I'd have something to talk about, so I'd just set up the microphone and talk. And, uh, but uh, I'm pretty proud of the of the streak that, oh, that we've had. It, it's, the feedback I it's get awesome. back from people, you know. And it's I awesome, man. Emails from, I mean, it is. You know, I've had guests from from all over the country. You know, that yep. Clubhouse thing opened up. I yep. had a whole big run of Clubhouse guests where I was getting people yeah. on. It was yep. some distance. And, you know, there's uh, the benefits is... It's 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 it touches my heart in so many ways of what when you when you make a little when you when you make a little effort to do a little more you know we can all do our recovery and and it teaches our own and how you want to do it and that is another cool thing about AA is that you know you can do this thing however you want to mm-hmm. uh, but like when COVID hit. And we're not standing around a parking lot after the meetings anymore and getting mm-hmm. to know one another yeah. and new guys come yeah. in yeah. and they can't make the connection exactly like you right. can when you're standing around outside yeah. of the church talking, yep. you know, but what guys were doing or they were coming to the podcast and they could hear Alex's story yep. and they could hear Shane's story mm-hmm. and they could get to know these guys yep. in our home group yep. uh, with, you know, virtually. So they could make that connection that used to be made out in the parking lot. Mm-hmm. You know, it's substitute. Yeah, I miss those days. I mean, I'm not going to lie. Too. Me too, I miss man. those days. But I'm also mighty complacent on the yeah, way it that's is. That's how the first time I met you, because I remember I was in me, I was like, I'm gonna, I'll say hello to him when we leave. 
You know, I assumed, I can't remember those meetings, but I wouldn't know how your sobriety date unless you mentioned it during that. I just assumed maybe you, you hey, he's got a couple of years, man. I, I kind of want to see what he's doing. You got a few months on me. You know, and um, so I remember that. But, you know, it's funny. You know, we talk about giving back and all this, and, and you need to keep plugging away and doing it because it's, it's awesome. It's huge impactful. But it's just funny, even as you get deeper into sobriety, I was talking to a friend of mine. He's not an alcoholic. And he said, hey, Eric, he goes, what are you doing tonight? I said, I'm doing such, such. He goes, uh, he goes, man, he goes, what do you think about that? I said, well, the 2% ego in me, I don't want to go. He goes, why? I said, because basically for, for an hour or two, I said, I'm going to have to sit there and be honest about really when you want to dwindle it down. A lot of failings of our life, right, till we recovered and started going the other way. And I said, he goes, well, Eric, but everything's great now. I said, hold on, no, no, don't mislead yourself. There's nowhere in that big book says you got a perfect life. There's nowhere in there that says you're going to be financially secure. And there's nowhere you says. But I said, let me just tell you, the path that I'm on, it's a better life. You know, you're not guaranteed anything. But I said, he goes, I never thought about it. He goes, so you're going to tell your whole story? I said, yeah, kind of like before, you know, and kind of the, when it got bad and, and what it's like now. And I said, <coughs> the value is really on the first half of the message sometimes, depending on. And I said, you can, you can relate to somebody when you hear their story and their failings and all that. And then you can understand, so that's how you, you're, you've grown, obviously. And, and I said, yeah, so there's a 2% ego. No, I don't want anybody to do it. Because I'd like for it, if they sit there and mentally Google me in their mind, they want to think some great shit about yeah. me. That's yeah. what I want. Yeah. I don't want them to know I, I lived in a car and I didn't have money for gas and I had to do this. But I said, and he goes, and this is what he said. He goes, so why you do it? I said, I'm not wasting my time and gas money over there for me tonight. I said, I'll enjoy seeing Dan. But I said, the whole goal is, and I can't speak for him, is that hopefully an hour or two hours or whatever this is, that there's someone out there who took the time to go in and listen to this thing, and there might be 13 seconds or five seconds or two seconds of something that was said or shared by either one of us that hits home. It kicks somebody in the ass to start getting sober, or it keeps somebody who's already sober, it keeps them on that path. Yep. He goes, is that why? I said, that's it. I said, I'm not getting paid to do it. Carry this message. But I get paid by feeling like, hey, I hope and pray, God. I didn't make everybody fall asleep. And Dan and I did something where somebody got some juice out of it and they're on a good path. It's a 12-step workout, fundamentally. Mm -hmm. It's carrying this message. It is. is. And um, we have to share our truths and our lives in order for, like I said, to make people say that. So others might identify, you know, mm-hmm. and, and another yeah. old cliche. I love all those things, and I don't mean to discount them by saying they're cliches. Yeah. But at some point, if you keep going to meetings, somebody's going to tell you your story. Mm-hmm. And the bell's going to go off. It will. You know, and you're going to go, oh, man, I did that. And that dude, and then the other thing of it is, is that you can see plainly that that guy ain't that guy no more. Mm-hmm. You know, and that means I can possibly not be the guy I'm being right now. That mm-hmm. I have a, That there is a way out. Yep, I think and, it's awesome. Uh, yeah, buddy Travis says, this is had, the way. What was the one you had uh, maybe a month ago? You had three of you guys on a panel? Yeah. I like that. Yeah. You could even do that here. Yeah. yeah. You know? Good. And and I thought, I don't know, and then I thought, he put that There's together. a lot of different you could, angles you can work yes, to do this thing. Yes, you could. Yep. But I like that panel, too. I thought that was a neat yep, little tweet. Shane, Shane, and then I come in there, and I, uh, you know, I didn't have the girl. I didn't have the permission of the girls, the girl that was asking the questions. I didn't have her permission to broadcast her voice. 
and I had thought about that night of asking her, but I just got the gist, you know, I just got the drift from her that that probably wasn't going to be okay. Yeah. So I just would listen to the question, and I would ask the question, I, so that we wouldn't have to broadcast. And you could hear her a little bit. I couldn't totally sanitize her yeah. out of it, but I think I did a good enough job to, because there is, you know, there's some people that won't come and do this because of the eleventh tradition. Really, that's what they're saying. That's yeah, what they won't. They won't do this because oh. this is violating that. Uh, I don't I'm not going to argue it, but you know, there's a million speaker tapes out there yeah, that yeah. are that way. Yeah. I think as long as I, uh, I think as long you know, what I don't have a right to do is bust your anonymity, right? Yeah. Uh, if you tell your first name and last name, that's on you. Yeah. Uh, and as long as I'm publishing it with the first name, last initial, yeah, uh, then I'm not breaking any anonymity stuff. No. Uh, this is just telling these stories to carry this message. Um, but I do be, I, I am, I am conscious and I try to be, uh, I, I try to pay attention to those kind of things. Like what I was saying a minute ago about the, uh, uh, not putting other people's voices out that didn't give that, permission to do it. But I can, you know, I have these little, Holly bought me these little lapel mics and they're Did actually, you? yeah, for Christmas, um, and they're actually just as good a quality as these mics. Really? I mean, they are fantastic. So now I can, you and me could have met someplace and I could do the podcast with really? those two little mics in, yeah. my, in my telephone. And that's how I taped the one at the Women's Center. And that's the way I taped the damn. one at the uh, the panel, the three-way panel the other day. You see, I had all three panel members permission to I'll do that damn. that night. You know, I said, hey, man, would y'all be cool if I taped this? And I'd sit, I cool. made sure I sat in the middle. Yeah. And I just held my microphone in my lap. That, that is little cool. lav mic, I just set it in my lap, and you can pick up and hear both guys just fine. That and, is uh, cool. Yeah, it is cool. So I can, that gives me some more um, flexibility on how I'm doing this. I don't necessarily have to have the laptop and two mics on boom stands and, and, and all that business. So, yeah, man. Uh, I, yeah, think- I got one from the retreat that I got to finish up i have a podcast sitting from uh from that retreat i held last month and i'm envious of that retreat mm-hmm. i'm envious of that and anytime what do you have a men's retreat yeah do you, is it random how do you do it anytime you need somebody to fill in you let me know because that is a neat that that it is, is it's magic it's plain magic man some stuff happens every time last year's was short on we didn't have a lot of people would come last year because of the covid covid and uh and I had let it grow up into the 35, 36 kind of people wow. for a little bit. That many? Yeah. That's too many. Ooh, feels too like many. it. Feels it, like it. Ended up losing the intimacy and some yeah. things started getting drug out a little bit to where it was just too many people. But uh, I reigned after last year, God showed me that somewhere around 15 to 20 is the right feels number. Feels right. Yeah. And uh, so I stopped the invitations this year at that many. And, uh, and, and I used to call it SPURT. And uh, it was a spiritual underground retreat. That was an acronym for that. And uh, plus it, like the growth spurt that happens mm-hmm. while you're there. Yeah. And um, so I've renamed it this year. And, and because I can't open it up to the whole, whole home group anymore. So I can't name it. Yeah, that's you know, like that. So I kind of changed it around. And, and I'm getting, you know, this is not. This, this is where I begin to feel arrogant and feels like I'm blowing off about it, but it's it's the truth and it's just what these are these these are the facts. Is I'm getting to have enough sponsees and grand sponsees and and 
people I've helped. Yeah. But the vast majority of the retreat this year were my sponsees and their sponsees. That many? Yeah. I'll and be we had 18. And I think or two or three there didn't fit into that category. That's but awesome. Those two or three, That's we awesome. all shared the same sponsor. So that is we awesome. all got the same sponsorship lineage. That's and, super. Uh, and, and last year's was super powerful. Uh, like at the end circle, you know, we're all standing in a circle with our arms around each other crying with tears rolling down our eyes because of how powerful this weekend was. And I thought, how do I? How do I top that? How do I match that? How do I, how do I, how do I keep that? And, you just and keep I don't the have any template. idea uh, how I'm gonna do that. But uh, you I don't know, think you have to try that. I had to prepare it. So there's a certain element, and it's that balance. There's a certain element of preparation. And what I looked at this year, what it, what it dawned on me was that my job is to fertilize the soil for our power to come in and do. That's the exactly work. it. And uh, so all I had to do is spread the fertilizer. So you don't have to outdo it. Yeah. It's going to happen. Yeah. And that's what that hit me this year. That really did this year. Those you know things I mean? to me are powerful. I mean, I, I enjoy doing this. And, and anytime anybody would ask, I would do it. But I can just speak for me. Um, one, someone who's got a little bit of an ego. And hopefully it's getting better all the time because I realize I'm so reliant on other we people's all help. Yeah, we do. And God, God gave us that. It's not nearly <laughs> what it was back then. Plus, it's recognized, too. And that's a big thing, you know, knowing what you have. Yes. But that... And mindfulness. My family has never been, on the male side, has never been um, emotional guys. Me neither. You know, uh, at all. Uh, We we don't hug a lot. We don't say I love you a lot. Um, Same here, same here. And didn't do a lot of that. Now, did I know my dad loved me? Absolutely. Did I know he'd do everything for me? Yes. I didn't need to do that. And... I have tried to be totally different. I tell my my kids and and uh, Stacy's boy Jake, right? Not my biological kid, and that's fine. I don't give a shit. I've never. Some people cannot open their arms and heart to someone that's not their biological. That is not an event to me. I love that kid just yeah. like I do you my hang kids. Hang that on the hook of recovery because you yeah. would be capable of doing yeah. that. Yeah, and it's not my kids. They're all my kids. Yeah. And and whoever's with me at the time, I like you more than the other two just because you're with me. But my tie into it is is that. I'm not an emotional guy. I mean, when my dad had cancer, he lasted about 18 months, terminal cancer. We knew we had a short window to live. And I didn't cry at his funeral. That's not because I'm not. A, I'm, I'm a tough guy. It's not because I'm a macho guy. I just don't have that. Now, when I had my let final quiet you, time. That's your training. Let me let you tell you, it, it took me almost, by the time I worked through his estate, I remember where I was at. I was actually in a bar, not drinking. Um... But it hit me one day. I heard an old Elvis song, uh, Suspicious Minds. He and I used to listen to Elvis all the time. It hit me. And boy, the tears flowed. On Father's Day this year, I uh, paid a few bucks a year, and you keep where people can make comments, you know, uh, on the memorial and make comments about them, those who have deceased, you know. There's three or 400 comments in there about him from all of his clients at his office. And maybe two or three each, new each year, you know. Anyway, I was reading through them. And for some reason, mentally and emotionally, it hit me. I miss my dad. And he was always my go-to, you know. Not the one to tell me how great I was. He wasn't that guy. But when I got my ass out of line, he humbled me. And when I didn't feel good about myself, he was always able to find those one or two small things and say, did you realize you might have done these things pretty well? And he was just that, he was just that guy I needed. And I miss him. Yeah. Boy, 
I'm sitting out in the garage by myself because I don't want anybody to see, and I can see that it's welling up. But I didn't even think I'd cry because I'm not a tearful guy. And man, it just, my shirt halfway down was soaking wet, you know, and I couldn't stop. My point, guys who are like that, we do want to cry sometimes, and we need to cry. We need to, to, to be honest with ourselves, mm-hmm. you know. And I'll leave here, and I may never cry for another five years. I don't know. You know, I probably haven't cried 20 times in my life, uh-huh. literally. You know, I don't have that emotional. Somebody says they have cancer. I'm not, I don't feel sorry for you. From the perspective, I don't care that you have cancer. What I care about, what are we going to do to keep you healthy? Let's fight this thing. I don't have that emotional attachment that you have cancer and it's terrible. I, I, I'll do all I can to help you. But I don't have that natural extension of emotion with it. But the other day it hit me, you know. And um, yesterday, I mean, I sat there for a couple hours and it just... You know, the opinion you really don't heal until that happens. You know, um, so when you hear these them. guys did that, I'm thinking it's powerful stuff. Yeah. And it was awesome stuff yeah. if that happened. And it happened a completely different way this year. Um, it's, it's almost like fifth step material, but somebody came in and shared something really, really heavy. And the men at the meeting held the space for him while he dealt with something that was really, really difficult. And I don't think there was a dry eye around the fire, and uh, and it ended in a complete the the weekend ended in a completely different way. Yeah, and you no way you could have orchestrated it, uh, no way I could have formatted it to make it happen. It, um, I have a sponsee that well, he's I met him on Clubhouse, and he's from Salt Lake City, and he came from Salt Lake City, Utah, to come to the retreat. Did he really? I picked him up at the airport, and he kind of spent the weekend here. Spent spent Thursday night and Monday, uh, Sunday night here, and Friday and Saturday, Saturday night we went like, down to the cabin. And I'll be damned. Uh, yeah, some really, really, really magical stuff. Uh, you made me think about like when my mom passed, and that's what. It's my opinion uh, of that. You know, we're a product of our training. You know, so mm-hmm. if all the men were stoic in your around you that you grew up with mm-hmm. that's what you're going to be yep. i mean there's ways that doesn't happen that's mm-hmm. not automatic yep but you yep. know that's what's modeled for me and the same thing but you know you anytime i'm sitting here doing this podcast and i if you listen you hear me call them bell ringers is where i relate to whatever my guest is sharing you know and and you know we weren't big physical showers of love in my family mm-hmm. and uh you know my mom was a little more on the love you stuff than my dad. Yep. Um, and I knew he loved me. Yep. There wasn't any question about that. It wasn't mm-hmm. like I felt unloved because yeah. it wasn't verbalized. Yeah. Uh, but then, you know, when I grow up in that, then I end up in the same kind of business, you know. And, and I remember taking note of when my dad's parents died that my dad didn't cry. You know, I remember that. And, uh, and, and then, like, when my mom passed in 16... Uh, I couldn't cry. I couldn't cry about it. I could not like fully emotionally, physically grieve it. And I wasn't able to get past it until then. And I worked with some stuff, my sponsor and talked to him about it, you know, and we come up with some ideas and some didn't work. And then one time I, he, he gave me this, uh, this idea of maybe go make a memorial for her at the cabin. And, uh, because that's one something I realized, uh, and, and it didn't give a lot of thought to it, but my mom do- donated her body to science and uh, to U of L. And they give you a box when that happens if you want the remains back, 
and she had said she did not, you know, she checked the box to begin with, but they give you another chance. And I could have overread that and said yes. And I understand now, uh, it, I didn't understand why we had these monuments in these big fields of per perfectly good ground to put these headstones. I, I can kind of concur. And yeah. I see now that's a place for somebody to go back and like have that connection to that person. Mm -hmm. Yep. You know, and so I made one of those at the cabin through my sponsor's guidance of a place that meant something to me, you know, a place where I had some deep connection mm -hmm. and, and I have a place there, you know, and, I, and and the retreat just ends up being every year, usually on a weekend. It's right around Mother's Day and it's right around my mom's birthday. Both. That's awesome. And, uh, and I get that, you know, it's almost like that energy that was created because what happened is I made that I made that memorial kind of thing. It's really just a stack of rocks out in the woods. And uh, but I formalized it as my mom's burial spot. In my See, mind. I wish I had that. My and, dad's not buried. Yeah, my uh, and and now I go there. And I, that day that I went that weekend that I uh, took that direction from my sponsor and went down there and did that. I finally sat down on my hand on my knees in the woods and cried. And I finally felt release from that grieving. Mm -hmm. You know that I never I never did grieve until then. And well, I know, have that spot I'll visit now and again. And like you were getting ready to say, you know, if you don't have a spot for your dad, that uh, don't mean you can't make one. Well, you know, and it doesn't have to have anything to do with. Or you know good. what killed Maybe me some was special spot where y'all used to like to go or something. When my dad, uh, they lived in that same home for forty-five years almost, and um, it was the the field and the barn and all that. And we buried probably close to thirty animals there, between horses and cows mm -hmm. and dogs and all that. And I can almost remember just about every one of them were. And I remember the memories my dad and I having to, you know, bury that animal and this and that. And that's my bonding with my dad. That was corny to some people, but to me, that that was my part of my life with him. Yeah, man, I understand that completely. When I was working through planning, you know, knowing that he had a short window those last thirty days, you know, planning the the uh, memorial and all that. He decided to be cremated. I didn't know. I just assumed he was going to be in a coffin. And um, anyway, my mom has those ashes. And and I know that's her connection to him. I know that. And I wouldn't take that away. But selfishly, for my dad's kids, if I had a memorial, you know, it, it probably a public memorial or whatever, um, they would come in and they want to have that. And uh, I know it probably won't happen until after my mom is not here. Um, and they get mad at that. But I said, look, I understand her take on this. That is her close, her bonding to him. She doesn't want to do the other. I can't push that envelope. Yeah. For me, selfishly, on Sunday, I thought about it. When I was sitting there crying, two things. And I said, man, I'd love to go disappear somewhere and just have some time with you and just talk to you. Now, I was able to do it in the garage, and he doesn't care. Hell, he's about as informal as you get. Right. But if I could have gone and disappeared somewhere where I thought it was just him and I, I would have loved it. Yeah. But, you know, the emotion thing you're talking about where these guys just kind of a lot of tears and a lot of emotion. Just a little bit. I was out there, and I purposely did it where no one was around. And um, if you came in and opened the door behind me, my face was facing away, and I, I was making sure I was wiping so no one could tell, and I'm looking down. And Stacey caught on that, that I was crying. I bet in 10 years she hadn't seen me cry a couple of times ever, if that many, maybe not even that. And, you know, to be honest, it was one of the first times I didn't care about covering up. Yeah. It felt good that day to let it out. And I hadn't felt that way you know, I've had my kids get hurt playing sports and this and that. Uh, all right, how can we get you well? You know, I don't have that emotional attachment. That's a terrible thing. No, let's just get you back. I don't have it. That day I did. And let me tell you what, for the first time at 50 years of age, 
it, at 51 years of age, it felt good, you know, to let it out. I haven't cried over my dad in 10 years as much as I did that day. Mm. And it just hit me, yep. you know. It makes you realize you get older, and it's all right to have a little bit of that side to you because you need it. I know the comfort I had in letting it out, man, it felt great, yep. you know. Didn't I bring him back. pretty easy today. But it felt good. Yeah. You know, and I, Stacy was... She, There's I, I healing in tears. Mm-hmm. There is. I always, honestly, without realizing, I thought, man, these patsies, look at them crying. Yep. What are you yeah, crying about? Just toughen up, man. It's not a big deal. And you know what? Walk it off. Yep. That, I mean, I, and I, I use that all the time on the ball field, you know? Hey, you're all right. Come on, stand up. Let's walk this thing off. You're going to be good in 30 seconds. You know what? There's life life yeah. issues and things that hit you personally that <clears throat> you're not going to be able to walk it off. Yeah. Shed some tears. Yeah. Tell somebody it hurts. Yep. Yeah. You can change things by that too, man. Stop telling them guys to walk it off. Mm-hmm. And Let that's them feel it. it for a minute. You know? And it's. I used to be so embarrassed, man. I and I never did. Wasn't that I didn't cry? You know, it's part of that training and stuff. But there, I can recall sometimes when I was either hurt, when I was either physically hurt, mm-hmm. uh, like in a ball game or something, you know, mm-hmm. or. Uh, or emotionally hurt that uh, that you know I did not want anybody catching me crying you know uh, and and you stop that stuff up you know I think that's some of what we end up with at the end of these periods when you hit thirty five years old and you didn't cry enough mm-hmm. uh, that that's you know not that that's not that that's the thing because this whole alcoholism thing I think at least in my opinion there is some genetic component there is some uh, it's nature nurture, mm-hmm. yeah, and uh, it is. and it's a death by a thousand cuts kind of thing, you know. That eventually I end up with enough personal trauma, whether if it's forcing myself not to cry when I'm truly hurt, or bad things happen to me, you know. There's been some things that's happened to me that shouldn't happen to a little boy, mm-hmm. uh, and uh, and fucking pets dying mm-hmm. and hurting. And mm-hmm. not be able to release that energy, mm-hmm. you know. And at some point, you know, I've got this whole bottle. We talk about TSSR. I've got a backpack I'm carrying around of unresolved mm-hmm. stuff. Yep. And it just gets to be too heavy after mm-hmm. a little while. And I can't carry it anymore, you know. And these, what the wonderful thing about these 12-step program is, is it allows me to unpack that backpack and process all that unprocessed uh, uh, garbage that, that I that I was unable to, to process as it happened. I remember... You know, you do things in your head. You justify why you're doing something. And you think it's valid and it's right. I remember when my dad, last about 18 months, I had his side of the family, my mom's side of the family. Neither one of them get along. And I was what my dad always was. Um, my mom was never accepting my dad's side of the family. My dad, his kids, my mom's kids considered him dad. He didn't care who you were. You were his kid. And he was there for you. My mom didn't reciprocate that. So there was always this. So when my dad's kids would come in, it'd always be a conflict because of my mom. He's now, you know, on his deathbed. You know, he's not going to be with us much longer. So I filled that role. Eric's having to take care of everything, organize everything. And I saw my mom's kids cry a lot. I saw my mom cry a lot. I saw my dad's uh, daughters cry a lot. I never cried once during that time. And it was not because Eric's a tough guy or a badass or anything, but at the time, my clear thought process was they are going to follow the beat of my drum. Mm-hmm. If I break down here and take on that this is horrible and terrible and blah, 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 that's going to make it tougher on them. Yeah, and in my head, that. I was thinking, I'm making it better for you by not doing that. In retrospect, I look back, 
you know, there were times I, I saw those people crying. And I would come and support them. I wanted to cry too. But I thought if I did, that it would really just blow it up and make it, what is a bad situation, feel even worse. I don't think I was right now when I look back. I don't know if I was wrong. I'm not saying I was right. I don't know. Uh, I know Sunday I was sitting here reflecting back on that. And I thought, man, I wish you would have done this before. You know, I, I wish you would have done this over the last 10 years. I don't care if it's once, 10 times, or a million times in that period. I think it, it, if it felt deep good as a release today, man, I wonder what it would have felt like, you know, the first 30 seconds. or. Yeah. You know, and even when I was there by myself, knowing that, hey, we only have another day or two of this, and I'm, I have one on one time with him, and he doesn't know I'm there, obviously, but I'm sitting here. Man, I was dying inside. It didn't formulate and show itself in tears, but now I realize, man, there's some importance in that to let it just let it go. There's nothing wrong with it, nope. you know, at all. And it took a long, it's taken me a long time, you know, uh, to even think that's okay, you know. And um, it, it, it felt good. It had also felt good to see somebody else see that because, to me, step one was, I'm letting it all these tears. Man, this feels awesome. I'm not going to tell anybody. Nobody, I don't want anybody to see this, but it feels pretty cool. I feel like a weight off my shoulder. And when she walked out, then I immediately went back into what's now. Oh, I don't want her to see that, so we got to play this off. And, you know, in a nanosecond, it was like when I did my fifth step with Mark. I, I didn't want to do it. But something nudged you to do it. Man, the release uh, and the, the sense of accomplishment of finally doing that, doing what you knew was right, and it gave you so much release. When I did that, I was like, man, it's okay. And mind you, this is coming from a guy that I just got done saying a, a little bit ago that I realized that in this program I failed by not accepting who I really am. And I didn't need to let her think I'm something that I'm not. It's okay to say you're hurt. It's okay to realize you're not a tough guy. You do have emotions, yep. and you can let them see that, you know, and not try to cover up and portray you're something you're not. Because what I was at that moment, I'm a damn 51-year-old 50, guy who wants to cry because of this, yep. and I want to let it go. And if you want to sit out here with me, you're going to see it. A year ago, I probably would have done the same damn thing I did. I wanted to, to I had my picture of my box of who I wanted to be, I wouldn't want you to see that. Right. Because that wasn't that successful picture there hanging on the wall. Yep. And you could tell she was, you know, surprised that she saw that. Yeah. And we talked about it a little bit later that day. She was, how did that feel? It's fucking awesome. Felt good. It's the gold standard in healing, man. And um, tears are the, in my opinion, I mean, that's. It, uh, this it gets a little awesome. funny, and I'm hesitate talking about. It, but like, when I'm working with new guys, man, if you can crack that egg, mm -hmm. to where some tears get shed, mm -hmm. you can watch how that impacts them long term in their recovery. That mm -hmm. they're able to, you know, like during a fist step, mm -hmm. or you know, get get people to really allow themselves to to do to to, to allow that to to allow myself to be seen crying mm -hmm. you know is one element of it that vulnerability that can mm -hmm. happen when that happens and then the, the other thing is is that there really is some kind of release some kind of physical release like those tears are attached to your heart mm -hmm. and when you allow them to come out 
it, it actually has a healing effect on your heart. You know, Stacey always said, she goes, Eric, you have zero empathy. And I've always been told yeah. that by m- many people. Yeah. And it, I tried to say that a few minutes ago, is that if someone said, oh, my daughter broke her leg, I don't have any emotional attachment to that. I hate that that happened. Yeah. Do you need me to help get her home from school because you. you're at work? Let me help there. I'll, I'll, whatever I can do to help. But right. I don't have that emotional attachment. And she goes, you just have no empathy at all. And again, and, and you know what? She's right. Yeah. And she is right. Ask yourself, is that what, is that the, is that who I want to be? And, and now, you know, I don't, I'm not saying shedding a few tears on a Sunday morning makes you empathetic. It doesn't. But I think there's some blend it, of those between emotions. That direction, though. Yeah. And it, and it, and I'm like, I don't want to shout this out to the world, but it did feel good. You know, and I don't know if I want to do it again tomorrow. I don't. I don't know if I want to do it on Wednesday next week. But yeah. if and it I don't does, want it to turn out to be some sobbing, crying. Yeah, s- but you know, there's got to be something between what I've been, and, you know, and, and crying every moment. Yep. And it did. It felt good. The middle. You know, it's a place in the middle. It is, and um, that's the symbology of this. But you're right. When you have your sponsees, when you have your sponsees, and you can really. As best you can, guide them to just being a hundred percent transparent to you. Yeah. It's amazing how much deeper this program can work your life. But if you try to sit there and keep your core kind of covered up, and you just try to work this program around the periphery of this, yep, you're never going to get yep. the juice out of it. That's what I mean about those tears. Show me that somebody's cracked the inside. You know, yeah. we made it to the to the core of that person. Yeah. And you know, and then uh, you know, the bond that gets built because of that, and the trust that you can hold the safe space for somebody. You know, I have a little pet peeve about like when you're in some situation and somebody starts crying, and somebody first rushing to find a box of Kleenexes to get. Yeah. You know, to me, well, the, to me, what that says is stop crying. You're making me uncomfortable. I would agree. And uh, you know, I don't get you a box of Kleenexes mm-hmm. if you say grab me a tissue. Mm-hmm. I'll jump up and do it, mm-hmm. but I'm not going to come over there and yeah. bring them to you yeah. uh, without, you know, without your asking for You're it. crying for a reason. Yeah. Let it go. Yeah. Because otherwise what you do is you, and you watch that, pay attention. If you're in a situation like that, somebody starts crying. When they get handed the box of tissues, they will stop. Mm-hmm. Yep. And, you're right. You know, they, they, it's a premature stoppage. Mm-hmm. It you is. You should be allowed to cry. Mm-hmm. Get that it out. Is. It, it is, you know, it's you know, it goes back to that cliche too of in here, you know, one, one good things about getting sobriety back is you, or getting sober is you get your feelings back, and the bad thing about getting you get sober your feelings, is you get back. your feelings back. Yeah, <laughs> that scared the hell out of me. I'll be honest with you. you talked about it a little bit earlier. The clarity you get, you know, you go and you, and, and you medicate yourself, and that's what we all do. You know, when you're in the madness, you're just exactly medicating. Oh, doing. a little bit of pain. Oh shit, I got the solution right here in that bottle. So yep. we do it, or it's a drug or whatever. And then when you get when you get engaged in this program and you know you're chasing after it, all of a sudden, man, the clarity of what you did, man, it hits you and it, it can be heavy. Yep. You know, it I've heard be. my kids and my mom and my better half and my partner and this and that and the other. But you know, there's a lot of power in that too. You know, because once you accept what you did, hey, now how are we going to rebuild from this? You know, yep. oh, yeah. and it's it's. That scared the hell out of me. That probably by itself was the single part of this whole process up to now that almost drove me back. I'm not saying I want to go back and drink. That's why we lose so many people on a four-step. Yep. Yep. 
And, you know, I'll be honest, I was like most people. I went and did the fourth step, and I go through, and I did my first three or four columns, and I'll never forget. I thought, I got the ultimate screw job from my sponsor. Because he said, oh, by the way, now we got to wrap this up by doing the last column. I want you to put your part in each of those resentments. You know? Well, I thought, hell, the fourth step, I thought, hey, what this is, I thought it was my time to beat these people up and justify all the wrong in which they provided to me. And it's amazing when you sit there and look at the big picture, what part did you play in that? Yeah. yeah, they were part, and so were you. And I wish I would have taken that and did what we uh, referenced earlier about how I failed in the program. I wish I would have ran with that part of that fifth step or the fourth step right there and realized, let's continue this on. Not only what impact did you have on those situations, now let's go deeper into you, Eric. If you played that part in those situations, what things do you need to fix in you? That's... I would have realized sooner that I'm an insecure guy. No one would ever describe me as an insecure guy in my social circles, family, or whatever, I don't think. And you know what? What you all don't realize, guess what? I'm insecure because of these issues. And I don't ever want anybody to know that. Because at my core, what truth is, is I'm still the 12-year-old little boy hoping to not be picked last on the side of the kickball field. That's exactly it. And, uh, And But I don't want anybody to know that. Yep. Yes. Yeah, you need to keep doing this, buddy, because it's powerful. Thank you, man. It is powerful. It's powerful. Well, we should probably wrap it up. Um, although I get on these rolls, you know, and sometimes the uh, <laughs> you know the person tells their story, and that's the best part of the podcast comes during the conversation. Uh, but what I do invite is if you got any final thoughts or any concluder, I took that from one of my favorite podcasters, maybe whatever, uh, anything that's on your heart that you want to say. No, I tell you, the biggest thing I'd say is for everybody who's listening to this podcast, if you think you're doing as much as you can in this program, you can always do more. Yep. Keep your eyes and ears open even more. Yep. You know, I think we all get into our, um, in life, inside of the AA, trying to chase sobriety, we all get into our ruts and routines, you know? And uh, whether you're a retiree or you're working 80 hours a week, I think there's always somebody out there that you might have the impact by giving your time that everybody else has tried to, to reach out to somebody. But you might be the one person who yep. can do it. Yep. You know? Complacency kills. Yep, it does. But no, I, uh, I, I appreciate you letting me share a little bit and uh, keep doing this, Dan, because I'm going to tell you what, it's, it's powerful huh? and it helps. Man, I can't believe that didn't happen before, guys. That's an old pattern. That used to be such a regular thing in the podcast that people made fun of me because there was at some point the compressor was going to kick on. Kick on sometime. And it took a long time for it to kick on today. <laughs> uh, yeah, well, thank you, man, because I do enjoy doing it. And uh, it really is something that's in my heart to, to continue doing. And, and, you know, another little spur off of is that some other people have started podcasts getting their voice heard since, uh, since I started doing mine. Awesome. And uh, Holly's got a podcast now. She ran with one. Yeah, she's got she's got a podcast uh, for her solo day challenge thing, and uh, we sit down and taught her how to do it. And now she's off and running with hers. And I have a sponsee that does a podcast. It's uh, based on true events. B O T E, and uh, they just they talk about stuff that's not really up my alley, but teach their own. Really, uh, they do kind of like the darker side. They have podcasts about murders and oh geez yeah it's not really up my alley yeah to each their own you know yep. he's having fun doing it and yep. they're, they're doing it and uh i mean he may reach know, somebody in his my, own unique way i say in my and it doesn't have anything to do with recovery uh i don't think he even mentions it in it but uh 
I, th- I do this little commercial for Anchor every time, you know, and I truly believe this, you know, let your voice be heard. Mm-hmm. You know, everybody's mm-hmm. got a story and everybody's story is valuable. Mm-hmm. It is. Uh, and people come in here all the time thinking their story is not, you know, I don't really have, a, you know, there's not too mm-hmm. much. Like, no, man, everybody's story is valuable. What do they always Everybody. say? The right voice sharing the right message at the right time. Yeah. And, uh, and that's how you impact somebody. Sure is. Well, cool, man. I appreciate it. I've enjoyed this evening. It's been fun. These podcasts always are fun. I always have a tough time uh, winding down off of them, too, at the end when I when I go in and uh, fold it up. And some nights I start pot, Some nights I start producing the thing right off. Uh, I've said this before on here, too. I, I know that I should never plan anything directly after this because of the emotional uh output that happens uh, I'll need to come down mm-hmm. I'll have to I can see that I'll, I'll hit a wall and you know I'll be jacked up for about a half hour and then boom I'm done <laughs> uh, so I'll end this one in the same way I end every single podcast uh, if you're not having a blast in your recovery it's your own damn fault and thank you all for allowing Eric and I to uh, participate in our recoveries in this manner today peace out <laughs>